0: Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where the shy halud take out the Sutter car that are helping the Har- Harkonnens take out the Atreides at the command of the Padishah Emperor
1: Shaddam. The F- My name is Whitney
0: Seibold. They call me the Kwisatz Haderach. And
1: with me, as always, is... My name is William DeBiani. I am a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs, And this week on... Critically claimed, we took a week off, Whitney was out of town, so we got a little catching up to do. We're gonna be reviewing the new releases. Dune. Halloween kills. The French Dispatch. The Last Duel. Berkman Island. And, of course, Most importantly. Boyfriends of Christmas Past.
0: Because <laughs> Because if there's anything you wanna do while gearing up for Halloween.
1: Hallmark in their infinite wisdom, in their infinite wisdom. Mm. Just keeps releasing their Christmas movies earlier and earlier. It used to be the month- Halloween night, mm. midnight, the stroke of midnight. They would just, whatever, they were, would a rerun of Golden Girls, whatever, just boom, stop in the middle of it. There'd be a Christmas movie. And that was fine. I, I, I think was, it was
0: perfectly fine. And They would run Christmas movies pretty solidly all the way through December 25th.
1: Yeah? Uh, through New Year's Eve. Oh, no kidding. All I right. think even they'll a- do that. After Christmas. Yeah, well, you know, people have the whole week off, you know. It's whatever. It, it, Keep it's on fine.
0: watching those Christmas movies.
1: Yeah, but uh, uh, they, they it's mm. their bread and butter. It does yeah. really, really well for them. What,
0: what they and... have is uh, like a, it's like a gigantic maggot. And they massage the torso of this maggot. And it just sort of like spews out these Christmas movies, like mm-hmm. maybe one an hour. Yeah. They're, they don't actually film these things. They just sort of congeal.
1: Funnily enough, there is actually mm. one that they filmed in my dad's hometown. Oh, no, I okay. forget what it's called, though. we'll review it in a couple of weeks So uh, if you're new to the show, or relatively recent to the show um, Quite a few years ago uh, I was in a car accident And I got held up at the Christmas season And I was pretty much on my couch for like Two, three months in a, at, a, at a stretch And that's when I discovered Hallmark Christmas movies Are this weird whole genre unto themselves uh, And as a result Ever since then, I've, I've taken some years off But I like to review some Hallmark Christmas movies in addition to everything else that's coming out, the big blockbusters, the Oscar hopefuls, and stuff like Boyfriends of Christmas Past. So we're going to be taking a trip down that lane, whether you like it or not. And uh, But before we get into any of that, uh, we, we're going to start with uh, some of the bigger releases that we missed. And uh, we're going to start with a movie that is... I mean, damn, do they want it to be one of the biggest movies of all time. This is uh, the latest adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune. And Whitney is actually a big Dune head. I well, I'm not so big a Dune head in
0: that I've read all of the books. There's a lot uh, of books. The, well, Frank Herbert himself wrote six, mm-hmm. and then Brian Herbert and I and uh, teamed up with another author, mm. and, um,
1: another Hunter S. Thompson.
0: No, it's a, a rather famous uh, science fiction
1: author. Um, um, sci-fi Hunter S. Thompson. Oh
0: gosh, the name is, is slipping my
1: mind. But George uh, Lucas.
0: No, it's, it's like Kevin. Kevin something. Um, I don't know. I'll have to look it up, uh, but uh, since then, you know, more and more Dune books have come out under Brian Herbert's name, and uh, I've heard that the sequel books are a slippery slope. Like you want, you read the first book and you're good, you put it down and you can walk away forever and you're fine. But if you even start to read the second one, you're pretty much committed to reading the, at least the next six. So, uh, so you don't want to even start that second one unless you're real really wet, ready to go sort of dive in. Um it is a dense tome. It has a glossary of terms in the back. Uh Frank Herbert um reportedly was
1: very drunk when he wrote it. <laughs> okay. I don't uh, approve, but it, uh, yeah, sometimes you can just read some of the book and be like uh, someone wasn't uh, someone was in a state when they wrote a- this. A-
0: allegedly, that's a rumor. That's yeah. not not a fact. I'm eh, not, so- not not slandering anybody, but uh uh, it takes place in the distant, distant future, so distant that humanity doesn't really resemble
1: humanity anymore. Uh, Except people Earth, are still named Paul and Jessica.
0: Yeah, like, <laughs> names have sort of leaked down, but Earth is, is nowhere to be seen. I think in one of the sequels they talk about, like, figures from 20th century Earth, but, like, as in some apocryphal thing that happened a long, long time ago. Right. The way we would talk think about, uh, say,
1: the pharaoh or... or yeah, like, or, the, yeah. I, I
0: think they name-check Adolf Hitler in one of the later wow. books, because the, these books are very much about... Tyranny and economic manipulation, the story of Dune, uh, luckily because I've read the book and because I've seen the David Lynch film, I can kind of vague, in a vague sort of way, give you a, a rundown on what happens in well,
1: this new film. Well, I would honestly, I'll, I'm coming at it from a different angle. I've never read the books. Uh, I've seen the David Lynch movie. Mm. And that's about it really. Okay. Uh and I've never I know there was uh, and You saw Jodorowsky's doing the documentary. Actually, right? I didn't. Oh okay. I kept I kept missing that, never got around to it. Uh, one day I'll see it. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I'm not I, I'm not avoiding it. I just never got around to it. Um Jo, uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky, the director of films like El Topo and Holy Mountain, was going to do a big sci-fi epic based on Dune. Uh, some of that material ended up in other big sci-fi epics. You know, um, um,
0: most notably, Alien and Star Wars Yeah, uh,
1: took a lot of the storyboards from Jodorowsky's Dune and, and just used, sort of them, yeah. used them instead. Um, but uh, no, I was really only familiar with David Lynch's Dune, and David Lynch's Dune is a film that David Lynch is notoriously not proud of. Uh, it was because his big. His... It was his big sellout movie. Basically, he's going to get David Lynch. He, he was the director for Hire. And... Yeah, this auteur from Eraserhead, Oscar nominated for The Elephant Man, and oh, we're going to throw money at him and let him do his big giant sci-fi epic. And well, they, and they. Were, and, uh, they...
0: Notoriously, uh, originally asked him to do uh, Return of the Jedi.
1: Yes. And there's
0: a a rather funny clip that many people are familiar with of him uh, talking about meeting with George Lucas and being completely baffled and disgusted by the whole thing.
1: But for whatever reason, Dune appealed to him. And so he made a movie out of Dune, which is... Plot-wise, a little impenetrable, Mm. but is absolutely dripping in weirdness and atmosphere and mysticism. And I'm really quite captivated by it. I I never quite understood, like, what's happening, I can follow along while I'm watching it, but you asked me two weeks later what happened, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. Watching Denis Villeneuve's film, Mm. uh, the new film, 2021 Dune, we're viewing it right now, um... Denis Villeneuve is a filmmaker who is astoundingly literal and he is pretty much just doing the plot yeah. and he's removing he's... all of almost all of the fancy I mean, it's in there if it's a plot element but he's not making something that's supposed to be uh, mystical or philosophical he's telling you this story of what happened and here's what happened and as a result, I know exactly what happened and now that I know what happened I can tell you no sir i don't like it oh uh, it's kind of boring actually
0: i i am um, i i said this on twitter uh earlier I, I feel about this the same way i feel about adrian lynn's uh version a film version of lolita yeah that he did in the late 90s um lolita had previously been adapted indeed was co-written by vladimir Nabokov, who wrote the novel yeah and it's not close to the novel at, at all the because Kubrick version because the Kubrick, the was. Kubrick yeah. film from yeah. the 60s yeah and uh that film is not faithful to the novel because the novel is... I mean, it's... it's Pretty vile. It, it It's about an adult who has an affair with a 12-year-old
1: girl, and... Uh, that's not having an affair, that's just committing a crime. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's... he's regardless, that's, that's what the story is about. I,
0: I, I, having an affair is, like, the gentlest way I could have put that. I'm not okay. trying to make it sound romantic at all. Okay. Uh, even though uh, in the protagonist's head it is, but the whole point is that it's actually incredibly gross what he's yeah. doing. Yeah. Uh, but the film version of that has to skirt around a lot of that to the point where, uh, it's not until like really late in the film that they start using some dialogue that makes what they're doing incredibly explicit. Uh, yeah. and uh, I kind of expected that film when I watched it for the first time, when I was a teenager for them to, for there to be this big twist that there was actually nothing untoward going on at all. It just sort of looked that way. And it was mm. sort of like a, a, a misdirect the entire
1: time. Yeah, because Hollywood was sort of mm. dancing around the yeah, subject. Yeah, and, and so I thought Ku- could, Kubrick
0: yeah. was going to sort of satirize that. Oh, we're going to dance around, dance around, dance around. Ah, it turns out nothing bad was happening at all. Jokes on you. And,
1: no, you know, I don't think that really works. But okay, I mean, based on what I've seen of the movie, it's a it's mm. a naive approach. I think the whatever movie. Moving on. The point is the point is the point is it's not a very faithful adaptation, and they were dancing around a lot of mm. stuff. And then Adrian Lyne came along and, 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 and pretty much just did the novel.
0: Yeah, and it's yeah, it's with, with uh,
1: Jeremy Irons and Dominic Swain. D-
0: Dominic Swain yeah, yeah. is uh, is the title character, and uh, yeah, he just did a straight up adaptation. It was a lot more right. uh, straightforward of the text. There was a lot more quotations from Nabokov. It's a lot more faithful to the actual book. Yeah. It's also beautifully photographed. Um, but the original has so much more life and personality to it. Yeah. Uh, it's, and it's kind of weird that Kubrick was the one who made sort of like the lighter, funnier
1: film. Well, and I feel like, and Kubrick did that with The Shining too. It's not actually a particularly faithful adaptation of The Shining, but it's a more interesting film. And I feel like there's a danger one gets into. And again, I haven't read Dune, so I cannot speak to this, mm. but I do feel like there is a danger when you're adapting material where you want to be faithful to it to the point where you're not telling the story your way you're just sort of illustrating the book, mm. and that's can be fine. Like if you can get through that, but it's there was those types of adaptations are rarely the ones that sort of stick in our memory.
0: Well, I I think that works well with something like the the first Harry Potter movie. Um, a lot of people complain. People who had read the book complained mm. that it was a little too directly
1: adapted. From the events from the book. Well, the first one, there's not a lot of fat on that. It's, yeah. it's a very lean story. The book's like 150 pages or something, and, and the like movie is pretty long. So, like, yeah, from it, what it I, puts idea, everything. In I
0: haven't there. finished. I haven't read that first book, but yeah. you know, I've seen the movie, and it, it's a long movie. So, I'm, I'm assuming oh, yeah. they included everything. Pretty much everything. And, uh, yeah. But that that is sort of a, a sort of like a, a more cinematic type of a story. So you can do that. Uh, Dune is not a cinematic type of a story. Uh, no, it's actually
1: kind of, uh, um, so I, I realize the, it's about people in the future from other planets and stuff, but okay. I do find it, the story rather alienating.
0: It's it's very distant, and uh, Denis Villeneuve is a very humorless director. Yes. Uh, he, he does not have a funny bone in his body.
1: If you're not and familiar the, with the name, uh, Denis Villeneuve directed films like uh, The... Uh, the kidnapping thriller Prisoners, uh, he did Blade Runner 2049, uh, he I did, did Sicario. Sicario, and he did uh, Arrival, which I think b- mostly by virtue of the material, not so much his approach, is easily his most human movie. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, it's and a and very I, good film. And I love Arrival. Arrival um, is great. I like Blade Runner 2049 a lot, mm. um, but that's kind of where I'm at. I'm not uh, the biggest uh, Denis Villeneuve fan. He's definitely one to
0: sort of dig into grand scores and uh, has a very interesting visuals, visual style. He hires some really interesting photographers. Mm. And he has constructed a really uh, interesting-looking film, hasn't he? Uh, I feel like the color palette is incredibly drab.
1: Very drab. Especially
0: when you compare it to what, like, Jodorowsky would have done. You know, Or even Lynch. Like, Lynch managed know. to
1: find some color in there, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, But yeah, he's sort of
0: giving us a really straightforward approach and he's giving us, he's so so interested in constructing these kind of visuals that he is not giving us a good reason why he should be telling this story. Uh, The story is um, a mysterious spacing guild and has uh, advised an unseen emperor. He's not seen in this movie. We saw him in uh, the David Lynch film. Mm Mm-hmm. That, uh, control over this one planet in the galaxy called Arrakis needs to change hands for, because, uh, of, uh, for assassination
1: purposes. Okay. The, the, you've the, already the... made this more complicated okay. than any May I? May I try? No, let, let, me, let me do it. it. Okay. all right, all right. All right. We'll, we'll duel. We'll see who can do it, who can do it <laughs> the right. most cleanly. Let,
0: let's see if I can do that. Okay. Arrakis is controlled by House Harkonnen. They're bad guys. They yes. They torture and they steal and they're bad. Uh... The Emperor has told them to vacate and let uh, the House Atreides take over Arrakis. They're good guys. They're good guys. And they're okay. And uh, the young Atreides, Paul, is being trained by his mother in witchly arts. That's something we need to know. It's very important. Uh, It turns out that uh, the Harkonnens are being pulled back only to get troops so they can go in and attack again, retake the planet, and more firmly entrench themselves on the planet, meanwhile, and also kill off the Atreides. Yes. Because the emperor wants them out for reasons that will be explained much, much later. Uh, And the story is about how that happens how the Atreides move in, start to move in, uh, uh, get to know the local customs, uh, understand the local people who live on Arrakis. They're called the Fremen. And the other native species that lives there, gigantic sandworms that are like thousands of feet long. It's like the
1: Chrysler building just rolling around the desert eating stuff.
0: Uh, Arrakis is valuable because it is the home of the spice, uh, which allows space travel, which in a way that is not explained in this new movie.
1: Yeah. Also, it's a great narcotic. And It makes you kind of high. It makes you really high. Uh, in the David Lynch
0: film, they explain that it alters your consciousness, and over many years, can also mutate your body. And we get to see what happens to a person after they've been taken spice for a thousand years, oh, yeah, and yeah. they turn into like this gigantic, weird, like smoke belching monster thing. It's awesome. And that's in the opening scene. And they talk to the emperor in the opening scene, and the op, the emperor's Ferrer. And <laughs> um. So there are some interesting characters, uh, sort of mixed in through this, uh, House Atreides has Duncan Idaho and Gurney Halleck and people who are training the young Paul, not just to be a good fighter and be a good diplomat in addition to being a good witch. Uh, he is just sort of, he's the chosen one essentially. And he is going to be destined to lead the Fremen, uh, take the planet back and become essentially the new Messiah of Arrakis. Yeah. How'd I do? That's
1: pretty good actually. (laughs) Um, Here's, here's what it boils down to. Hmm. Uh, House Atreides goes to this new planet. This new planet seems cool, I guess. Then a bunch of people attack House Atreides, and they have these big giant spaceships in space, and they're shooting at him and stuff. And then it mostly ends up with a bunch of guys running around hacking each other with machetes. Hmm. Because they all have these, like, force field things uh-huh. that are really, really useful until they're not for plot reasons. The, uh... The
0: conceit of those shields that they wear is that uh, you, you can pass through them if you're moving very slowly. So like yeah. a sword fight, you can't cut through them. You can't swing a sword at these things
1: it'll yeah. glance
0: off. But if you push a sword really slowly through them, you can stab somebody.
1: Yeah, super useful that's, in all contexts.
0: That only happens in one scene in this movie. Like they add yeah. the special effect to have like that sort of shimmer around people's bodies. Yeah. But they're just hacking and slashing at, at each other and killing it each other. Regular, it doesn't fucking you know. matter. It doesn't
1: make any sense. Uh, And uh, uh, Paul, played by Timothy Chalamet, and his mom, played by uh, Rebecca Ferguson, uh, they manage to escape the slaughter, and they run into the desert, and will they survive? Yeah. Uh, And that's when the story gets going, and that's where the first movie ends. That's where the first movie fucking ends. Um, It's a two and a half hour film. Mm -hmm. You feel it. What I'm mostly frustrated by with this movie is that this is uh Denis Villeneuve is a filmmaker who understands grandeur and I do appreciate that he understands depth and scale Uh better than most other filmmakers working and when you're looking at I don't care if you see this in IMAX or at home when you're just looking at the framing of spaceships coming into frame or the the enormity of the giant sandworms and how he frames them against like human beings in the foreground. And you just get this incredible sense of colossal bigness. Mm. He's really good at that. Um, He's also really, really good at sucking anything alive out of this story. And instead what we're doing is the actors are led to basically it's up to them to inject some vivacity into this. Mm. The people who are good at it, Oscar Isaac, who is the good king, and that's pretty much it. Uh and uh, um um, um Lady Duncan Oscar. Idaho Duncan Idaho. Jason Momoa, who is basically Aquaman in space. That's basically yeah. how he's playing this. He's not doing anything weird, and Javier Bardem as the leader of the Fremen. Huh. Is uh, not in it a lot, yeah, the, uh, but whenever he is, he brings a lot of uh, uh, energy into this. The, Everyone uh, else, this... even if they're giving a good performance, okay. is doing that kind of um, that kind of like uh, uh, old fashioned historical epic kind of acting, where we're all standing around big rooms mm-hmm. and we're saying really important sounding things, and we're just sort of standing there looking at each other while wearing cool outfits.
0: The problem is, you, you talk about Denis Villeneuve uh, understanding grandiosity, and you know when we see the gigantic sandworms, I, I do mean specifically
1: in framing. Yeah. Okay, just uh, so uh, we're yeah, clear. and
0: the uh, spaceships flying in. But what he's missing is. That sort of regal opulence.
1: Yeah, uh, that melodrama. I
0: to, yeah, I want to see the, the big rooms. I want to see them brightly lit and people blowing on
1: brass horns or whatever the future equivalent yeah. is. Th- these are human I mean, they're human beings. Hmm. They're alive. They are filled with uh, needs and wants and desires and flaws, many of them tragic, some of them fatal. These are people who are stabbing each other in the back and scheming and romancing and wanting more out of their life and questioning their ideas. And it could not be any less about that. All of the actual human drama in this has been pushed down as far as it can until everything is just about the plot and the plot is not good. I'm saying it right now, the plot is well, it's clear, mm-hmm. but it it's clearer here than it's ever been in, in another feature film, so kudos for that. But the clearer the plot is, the more I realize, ah that's why David Lynch didn't focus on that. <laughs> because what is this story about? This story is about a bunch of shitty colonialists taking over a planet, mm. destroying all the local people in order to steal for their empire, being replaced by slightly less shitty colonialists, doing the exact same thing, well, who then get killed uh... by the other colonialists, and then they're going to join in the the local groups, and there literally is a prophecy about how... Some white kid from another culture is going to come in and do our shit better than us. And I'm watching this and I'm like, wow, when you strip away all the weirdness, when you strip away all of the exciting sort of uh, overacting that David Lynch put into this, when you strip away all of that and you just deal with the plot and you take it totally straight, it's not interesting. Interesting. It's well, actually it, pretty straightforward and bland to me. It, uh, well, if if I could, please, um, this,
0: I, the, I welcome uh, your take. The actual, uh, if if you go back to the original book, sure. uh, this is uh, it's very it is is Islamic focus, is, islamophilic. Um,
1: That's you are definitely write, using the wrong words, but it's about no, it's, it's, th- it's th- about
0: this, Islam. This, this, it's it's a word I, I cribbed from a critic on. Twitter. Well, I just so want to make apologize. sure you're using the right word. Yeah, if you're um, using the wrong it's, one. It, you know. Frank Herbert was very interested in the Islamic world and the way it had been sort of banged about by other colonialists. And mm, like the cru- Crusades, like, like Yeah, like yeah. the Crusades, or um, you know, how India was you know, occupied by England, etc. Et yeah. all, all the instances of
1: uh, Europeans colonizing the Middle East. Yeah. Um, or, you know, in the case of the 21st century, Americans.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, look what we it, did. Could, it could be a metaphor for all of that, but yeah. it's, it actually has a very... Um, Islamic Bent, the book. Yeah. And if they had focused on. Um, neither David Lynch nor Dennis Villeneuve focuses on that sort of socio political element of mm-hmm. it. Uh, David Lynch focused more on sort of like the psychedelic elements, and Dennis Villeneuve focused on nothing. So, uh, <laughs> uh, really, he, the, this yeah. movie, the, he doesn't make his movie about anything. He doesn't really care what it is. He's no. just filming the script. Uh, and so a lot of this sort of political charge that you could actually put into the Dune story that is already in there uh, is Mm. frustratingly left off to the side. Yeah, And there were better ways to film this or tell this story that would bring that
1: out. By by just focusing Mm. on the plot here and focusing exclusively all of our attention Mm. and theoretically all of our emotional uh, attachment, although aside from I like Jason Momoa and Oscar Isaac, they're cool, Mm. uh, I had none. Uh, but by focusing it all on House Atreides You're basically forgiving them Their part in this What is mm-hmm. basically if you're going to look at it from the Fremen's point of view as here are these people Who have been colonized and are fighting back for it And aren't they the real heroes mm-hmm. here I would say yes so why are we focusing So much on these assholes Who well, the, you know, Okay they're better than Harkonnen But that's like saying that like that's in like the, saying uh, that Cobra Commander is better than, like, you know, uh, Serpentor. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah, Serpentor yeah. is worse, I guess, but Cobra Commander isn't that much better. In in the David Lynch version, there was
0: at least an element of, a, of a, when the new colonials moved in, the Fremen were just sort of, like, rolling their eyes, okay, we just gotta do... And another occupying force. We got to tell them all about the, yeah. the still suits again. And a lot of the details are a little are
1: kind of fun. Yeah, um, there's uh, there, there's some cool production design cool. here. Uh, very empty, cool. unfortunately. It's like, don't you people have interests? Why is everyone's room completely empty except for their bed? Yeah, There's a lot of big, empty, open spaces. No one, without no any one reads. No one has knickknacks. No one has clothes. Where the fuck? That's And I, I think that's
0: sort of just the result of a lot of modern filmmaking, because a lot of sets aren't built anymore. And when they are, mm. they don't want to spend the time it takes to really sort of set decorate them, especially in, uh, that is in
1: productions of the scale. I saw a, uh, a tweet someone had posted. Mm. It was... Uh, uh, Details from the production design mm. Of Denis Villeneuve's Dune mm. And it was all Stuff that was in one room At the beginning <laughs> And it's like And it, honestly None of it was details All of these were like Close-ups from the movie Because the movie Only films something If it's of interest mm. If it's not It's not It doesn't exist Yeah No one has Incidental interest. No one has uh, uh, No one has a bedroom That feels lived in No one has an office That looks mm. like someone works there Everything is just incredibly staid and modern to the point of pointlessness. And on one hand, I'm impressed by the scale. It looks big. But I'm distressed by how drab it all comes across. It just... What David Lynch... And again, David Lynch is doing not an amazing movie in a lot of ways it's certainly i I, I, I really i like it better than david lynch does i like it better than david lynch does too Mm. a lot of people do actually it turns out um but that's a low bar (laughs) he really really hates it um but there's a lot of really interesting Mm. stuff in it and what he focuses on in that movie more than anything else are the ideas of mysticism Mm. doesn't care how much they make sense but he's interested there's a scene in both movies where uh, Paul Atreides is met by the leader of what's the name of the, the, the witch group? The Bene Gesserit. He he's, yeah. le, le, uh, meets the leader of the Bene Gesserit, and in order to test him to make mm. sure that he is now the Gom he is the Gom
0: No, no, that's the name of the It's te- the name of the poison that they use in the test.
1: Okay, I'm not talking about the poison. They basically he's got to put his hand in a box, mm. and the box is going to give him just un- incredible amounts of pain. And if he removes his hand from the box, he dies. Yeah. Uh because she's she's holding, po- she's holding a poison, a poison, poison needle, knife to his head, and if he moves, neck, yeah. if he pulls it, she can just stab him immediately and he dies. Um in the Denis Villeneuve version, it's presented as, and that's what happens. Hmm. And he puts his hand in the box, and it hurts a lot, but then eventually he's like, Yeah, I can live with it, I guess. It's it's fine, it sucks. But like I, I can work with whatever, and then afterwards you'll be rather impressed with me, won't you? In the David Lynch version it's fucking horrifying. There's it's this like, general it's, sense it's that like sprung on him and he's like, screaming and
0: sweating. You're imagining
1: and, uh, what could possibly be in this box. Mm-hmm. This box like to me is scarier than the than the lament configuration in hellraiser. This <laughs> box is fucking terrifying. On, it comes he, out of it it feels like it's from hell. And nothing feels like it's from hell. Everything feels practical to the point of just lack of interest nothing yeah. is painted nothing is uh, nothing is des- everything is designed for function nothing is designed for human use or God forbid mm. a human pleasure uh, and so much of David Lynch's dune is about uh what's the word I'm looking for here um uh, hedonism mm. the harkonans are just this incredibly...
0: Physically yeah,
1: focused, perverse group of humans. Yeah,
0: they they have like sex slaves that they murder while they have sex with. Uh, yeah, there's,
1: it, it's, it's about there's how a, completely evil the power yeah. creates. What what type of how it mutates people, if not physically yeah, sometimes, then but morally.
0: Yeah, there there
1: is a. a there's an
0: element of homophobia taken from the book that David Lynch just yes. put in the movie, uh, which, which is True. unfortunate. Um, it
1: is unfortunate. I yeah,
0: the, where they they sort of point out sort of part of the the wicked hedonism of the of Baron Harkonnen uh, is no. that he's gay, and that's uh, yeah. that's presented as an evil in in the book. Well. That's unfortunate. It's 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 an element of his evilness, and that's really that's really unfortunate. I think
1: it's more for me the best way to take that, and of course it does suck that that's in there. But the best way to take that is all they care about is their own flesh. Yeah, all they care about is their own what their own appetites doesn't matter what those appetites are uh, those appetites could be just I really love fruit loops. Okay, but if you take that (laughs) to the point where you're destroying whole planets to get fruit loops, Mm. and you're just surrounded by fruit loops, and you're just Mm. shoving fruit loops into your mouth at like one chunk after another until entire civilizations are dying because you're eating all these fruit loops, you may have taken it too far.
0: Uh, yeah, Baron Harkonnen is such a wonderfully disgusting character yeah. in the David Lynch version. We we see, yeah. you're talking about, he's concerned about his flesh. In the opening scene, he's getting, like, black tar sucked out of these big pustules on his face. Yeah. Uh, later on, uh, his nephew kind of seduces him. Yeah, uh, yeah There's there's some, like... Villain stuff going on I I put a plug in your heart And it'll only keep them working If you milk this cat every day Like weird stuff like that
1: Yeah Where meanwhile in this version Stellan Skarsgård Is bald And and somewhat fat And he's a jerk Yeah he's just sort of like Brusque Just just sort of generally evil Like Mm. not in a meaningful way Not in a way that Stands out amongst any other villain You've ever seen That's the thing that That's the thing with this movie Like there's in a vacuum there's cool stuff in this movie. The visual effects are really cool. The color palette is drab to the point of boredom, yeah. but like it's, it's there's a lot of really cool stuff here. People worked really really hard on this. Um and I'm watching this and I'm like this is a lot of time and effort and money to make something that I'm frankly a little bored with. Yeah. I'm a little bored with this. And it doesn't seem to have a perspective. It doesn't have uh, a meaningful point to make. Clearly, people were in love with the idea of making it. Hmm. But I don't really understand what Denis Villeneuve thought he was accomplishing with it. Hmm. What are you adding to the world other than now there's a more straightforward adaptation of Dune? I've seen worse movies, obviously. I'm not saying it's like a hunk of crap or anything. I just find it just annoyingly middle of the road. Yeah. It's, and of all of all the fucking effort you took, it like ended up middle of the road? I mean, I, I can give you some bonus points for costume design if you want, but I'm not gonna. It's It's taking a lot to really
0: dazzle an audience. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people have have been arguing uh, what's the best uh, vessel in which to consume this is it should it be seen on a gigantic IMAX screen with really loud speakers mm-hmm. with the soundtrack of Halloween kills bleeding in from the next theater <laughs> over or should it be at home where it's a lot more convenient and you're getting the same visuals on a smaller screen uh, and a lot of people have been saying this is the kind of thing you need to see on a big screen mm-hmm. I have a feeling that if I had seen this on a big screen, I would be equally bored and not yep. as dazzled. I, w- I did watch this at home. Same, so did I. And uh, that may be affecting my interpretation of it. <sighs> but I don't think it, I,
1: it is I, because this you and I is. You are the, very aware of the differences of these kinds of presentations. Yeah, yeah. We understand that. Listen, if if you see a movie in a theater and you watch it at home, there's a difference in presentation. Mm. If you see a movie on a high-def TV and you see it on a cathode ray tube tube TV, an an old-fashioned TV, there will be a difference in presentation. If you see it with regular speakers on your TV and you see it in 5.1 surround sound, there will be a difference in presentation. Mm. We all would like to see the movie in the best way we possibly can. Sometimes that's not possible. In the case of right now, yeah, the pandemic is still going on. Many people are still uncomfortable going out there. They have uh, 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 extenuating conditions. They live with family members, and they're trying to minimize exposure. Uh, You know, my my mother has asthma, Mm. and I'm trying to see her as often as I can to help take care of her. And I'm trying to minimize my exposure to this as much as I can. I am aware when I see a movie in a theater, if it has a bunch of dazzling shit in it... Mm. That it's looking cooler in a theater than it probably will at home. I am also aware that if the plot sucks in a theater, it's also, <laughs> also going to suck at home. Yeah, and well, the fact that I'm sort of like, wow, the the surround sound was really, really cool, doesn't fucking affect the plot. And yeah, so the, uh, I, this might be a bit more of a ride in a theater, but the story is the same. Unless you're uh, really bringing it. Unless
0: you're yeah. going to bring me something like new visually, uh, I'm not. I, forgive me, but I'm not going to be dazzled. I yeah. need, I need to be dazzled. To be dazzled, and it's yeah. really rare that I think a modern special effects allow that to happen anymore. I'm trying to think of there a few. Was, Speed Racer was very dazzling. Speed when it came Racer out. was dazzling. Yeah. Uh, I got that effect from uh, Valerian. Um, Valerian
1: oh. again. Pro- uh, th- the director The director's a creep. The director's but, but, a creep, but, but the, the visual, movie is, the visuals in that movie are really impressive. The movie's actual mm. like presentation of a sci-fi universe is compared to the other stuff out there, distinctive no. and vivid and unusual. I was watching this uh, uh, and uh, my partner Michelle came in and uh, they weren't watching it with me and it was just on some scene on Arrakis. And the first thing they said was, "Are you watching Star Wars?" Because it looked just like something you'd see on Tatooine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it did. There really wasn't a, a, a great so, distinction. So, as as impressive as the visuals
0: are, these are actually not unique visuals. Uh, if you look at some old book covers of the original editions of Dune, oh they
1: look really cool. They look
0: really cool, and I think that might be sort of the look he was going for. Some of those paintings—they mm-hmm. never look as good as the paintings. No, uh, yeah, th- th- no. Uh, No glory shot of Dejah Thoris uh, is going to look as good as those book covers from the old Edgar Rice Burroughs novels. Yeah. Um, Just that aesthetic is just really, really pleasing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So as such, I feel like this is an aesthetic I've seen before. I've seen on these pulp novels, but it doesn't feel like a pulp novel come to life because it's so downbeat and because it's so so turgid and nobody's having any fun with this. uh, I don't feel like there is a lot of life and vivacity. Like not even even the villains are having fun being villains. Um, You're villains for fuck's sake. and And something that's really important is sort of a good sense of place uh what kind of a place is Arrakis how does it differ from Caladan where the Atreides came from how does it well there's differ water from... on Caladan a little bit but you know they're they're <laughs> photographed in the same sort of hazy
1: way they have the same sort of drab yeah. color palette the, we the, cut to the, Gidi- the, the place where they live has mm. again it's more black than tan is, <laughs> is, is their castle on Caladan mm. but um same basic yeah, they, design aesthetic. it's not like I moved from my house where I had all like you know, all this collection of artifacts and our history of the house of trades. It's like, no, we moved from a place where there's nothing except big rooms into a place where there's nothing except big rooms. That look the same. Look yeah. the same, just the color swapped. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, what am I supposed to do with you, dude? Like I guess I'm supposed I mean, to just fucking be impressed, and I guess I would be if it was impressive, but I'm not. And they
0: also, uh, they left out an important detail. Oh, yeah? Um, they explain this in, in detail in the book, and they have one line of dialogue devoted to it in the David Lynch version. But those still suits, those things that they, you have hmm. to wear on, like, out in the desert,
1: yeah, because they, capture
0: uh, all, every single uh, bit of your bodily moisture and recycle it into drinking water.
1: Yeah, because otherwise uh, Arrakis is so arid you would die in a few hours if you were stranded out in the yeah, desert. Yeah,
0: you would literally dry up.
1: Yeah, yeah. So this this preserves all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: um, they ex- they go to a great deal to explain what that is uh, in, and how it works mm-hmm. in the David Lynch version. I always appreciate when they f- explain shit. And uh, they don't say that at all in this movie. No, they, they, they do. They say you have to wear it and it'll... Recycle your fluids, but they kind of zip through that bit a little yeah, bit. Yeah,
1: but they—they they do, they do, they do say that. They, I think they, they I think also leave- give me a little, a little not enough credit, but I think they do cover right. that plot
0: they, point. They also leave out that, you, that you're supposed to pee and poo in that suit and it recycles your
1: waste. That's the sort of detail I think David Lynch is more interested in than anything mm-hmm. Phillips <laughs> Um, so listen, What it boils down to, is this? Um, you know, it ends, frankly, really anticlimactically right. because it's basically a setup for the next movie. Uh, but it doesn't even feel like um, this is even a natural place for it to end. No, it, just it doesn't sort of, feel it just
0: like sort of d- starts dangling. It just
1: sort of like, and it's weird is that when it, it all builds to a moment. I guess they're trying to make it like so. This is the moment where Paul determines his path, hmm. and, and, he's, he's and had, he has a lot of visions. Really, and, and honestly. It's like Denis Villeneuve forgot how to film an action sequence. The last <laughs> fight in this movie is just a couple of guys scuffling in the dirt, and it looks like they just figured it out on the day. You just had these giant fucking you know, sandworms and... Sand hurricanes and spaceships coming around, and people with force fields fighting each other, and giant armies. And it ends with like Russ Meyer knows how to shoot a fight in the sand (laughs) better than Denis Villeneuve. It just it ends up just feeling like kind of like a whole lot of nothing right there. And I'm not excited to see where it goes. And I know where it goes. Mm. And I know interesting stuff happens after this. But I'm watching this, and I'm like, no, I don't. Mm. I'm I'm not invested. I'm just not. I like the cast. Everyone did a good job in terms of like they were did what they were told to do in terms of production design and stuff like that. I don't they think these were mistakes, but yeah, I I no. <laughs> I can I, tell you're very disappointed. By I'm, this. I'm very disappointed by it. I I well, I'm, I didn't. I try not to build it up. In fact, I was actually going in. It's just like look, I'm not the biggest villain Villeneuve fan. I think Blade Runner is a visual marvel with a script that only kind of works at best. But it mostly is okay. Arrival is brilliant. Prisoners is a pulp airplane novel that Denis Villeneuve treats like a big deal, even though it's not. Sicario is actually a pretty morally reprehensible tale that Denis Villeneuve completely loses. Mm. He completely loses track of that thing. Um, I think Denis Villeneuve's greatest skill as a filmmaker is he makes everything seem important. Even when it's not. Okay. I think that's what he imbues into his stories. He'll take any story, regardless of how good the material is, regardless of whether the material actually has depth, and he will treat it as though it has more depth than anything you've ever seen. Yeah. And I think if you're only half paying attention, that's incredibly captivating. I think if he actually has a script that's good, Arrival, it genuinely is captivating, and he's truly elevating it. Mm. But I look at Denis Villeneuve like I look at Ridley Scott. Which is, if you give him some good script, him, he'll, make yeah. a good, he'll make a brilliant movie. If you give him a bad script, he'll make a bad movie that looks pretty good and has a sense of gravitas to it. But he's got gravitas from a visual perspective, but not a narrative perspective. And I don't think he has much of a point of view. Yeah. It's yeah, a real it was... bummer. Um, but uh, <laughs> let's talk about another uh, 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 a big, big, big movie uh-huh. that actually opened to a lot of money uh, this uh, last week. Uh, while uh, while you were gone, uh, let's talk about Halloween kills. The one, two, 12th I was gonna say the third Halloween two. It's it's <laughs> it's the third well, Halloween two. There was
0: Halloween and there was Halloween two, and then yeah. there was Halloween and then there was Halloween two, and then there was Halloween which already which was a Halloween two. Yeah. So this is
1: the fourth Halloween two. It's the fourth Halloween two, but it's the, it's first, the first Halloween, Halloween two to, that to a Halloween two. Yeah. Let me explain. Uh, John oh, yeah. Carpenter, if anyone is if anyone is new I'll run through it really mm-hmm. fast John Carpenter helped define the slasher genre In 1978 With the original Halloween story Of a serial killer in a white mask Killed a bunch of teenagers uh, And it ended kind of ambiguously Was he really the boogeyman or was he just a man mm-hmm. uh, That was enormously successful It led to a series of sequels Some are better than others I think 4 is actually rather good uh, and then that got sort of retroactively rebooted in 1998 with Halloween H2O, which brought back Jamie Lee Curtis, the star of the which, original movie. Which ignored Halloween uh, 3, Halloween 4,
0: Halloween 5, and Halloween 6.
1: Yes, and it just basically just said, all it is is, here's this killer Michael Myers. He has an obsession with his younger sister, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. She's been living on the lam uh, in like witness protection. Uh, dealing with this trauma. She's dealt with a history of substance abuse. She's not a great mom, but she does care about her son, played by Josh Hartnett. And then Michael Myers finally manages to track her down, and it leads to a big confrontation. Um, It's not filmed gloriously. Like, the cinematography isn't as good as some of the other Halloween movies. But beyond that, that's actually a very well-told Halloween movie. I like Halloween H2O a lot. Uh, And then they decided, eh, fuck it, we'll make one more. And they made Halloween Resurrection, which is about... A reality TV series on the internet <laughs> and
0: undoes like the it's, catharsis it's at the end of the seventh so, movie. It's such a
1: bummer of a movie, uh, and then that tanked, and so the series went radioactive for a while, yeah. and then Rob Zombie rebooted it in two thousand
0: and seven uh, yes.
1: with uh, I think it's two thousand seven uh, with a remake called that called Halloween uh, that focused less on oh, Michael Myers, he's the unknowable boogeyman, and more on knowing Michael Myers and actually dealing with here was what his childhood was like and here's how he was just another killer, a serial killer who was was the direct result of their environment. And, you know, it was a bold choice. Uh, some people really like that movie. Some people really hate it. I initially really hated it. I've come around to going you made some creative choices and I respect that but I don't think the movie quite works mm. then he made Halloween 2 which is awesome I think Rob zombies Halloween <laughs> 2 is incredibly like bold and weird and deals more directly with the fallout of trauma better than most non- slasher movies do like it's pretty cr- it's crazy mm. it's really really bizarre uh, it doesn't entirely work but I think it's daring mm. and i really think it's underappreciated uh and then that didn't do as well and so they the series went on ice for a while and then now david gordon green a couple of years ago came out with halloween h40 came out 40 years after the original which like halloween h20 ignored all the sequels except this time it also ignored the fact that Lori was michael myers's sister something
0: they introduced in the original halloween too
1: yep And uh, Laurie Strode, much like Halloween H20, has been living with the trauma of the incident. She had kids. She's estranged from her kids. Michael Myers breaks out again, goes on a killing spree, leads to Laurie Strode having a cathartic final showdown. Looks like everything's settled. And now we're in Halloween Kills... Where Michael Myers somehow gets out of that one again, it's like it's like the resolution of a cliffhanger from the Duke Boys. Like, oh no, how are they gonna are they oh, gonna be able to jump their car was, over this ditch? How how's, yeah. the,
0: how's the immortal killer gonna get himself out of this yeah. bucket of syrup? Uh, the uh, <laughs> the bucket of syrup in question was at the end of the 2018 film. Michael Myers was locked in a uh, locked in a basement, and the building was set on fire. Yeah, uh, sp- specifically. Uh, designed to be set on fire there's like yeah. gas tubes so he was there. he and, was
1: trapped in a basement mm. and the whole thing is the building was supposed to collapse on him killing him mm. forever everyone's this, super uh, happy and then the fire department yeah, shows up this Fuck. Why this did, film opens why did you think about that this film the, fire opens,
0: up. the fire department showing up <laughs> they break in they uh they set michael myers free in uh a, a, a scene that more characteristic of a silly Friday, the 13th sequel than one of the Halloween movies. Yeah. Uh, he, he just, Michael Myers just murders all of the firefighters.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and, and then, then he just proceeds to go about his night, He goes, goes about his night, killing people, going back around. And, uh, his, his <laughs> big goal is to go back to the house where he grew up and just sort of stand in the window. Cause that's what he does in this yeah. universe. Well, he trying to get uh, home.
1: That's all he cared about.
0: Along the way, we have some of the most pathetic fan service <laughs> crap that you'll ever see in a Halloween sequel. <laughs> They bring back the little kids from the original one. They get some of the same actors back, like the yeah. nurse who was attacked in the opening scene of yeah. Halloween. She's they back. get the same actors back. Yeah, that's cool. Like, who the hell cares about that nurse? It's let, her have, s- let her have
1: her role. They're so
0: desperate. And uh, it's it's just a, a desperate fan kind of thing where <laughs> a lot of the uh, sort of more interesting, subtle moments from the previous film are just sort of crumbled up and thrown out the window. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, there's a a really weak uh, theme of how Michael Myers' presence sort of, like, leads to mob violence, which is something they already covered in Halloween 4. True, Uh, true. And here, like, you kind of sense a lot of sort of the desperation of how this, there's a serial killer on the loose and the town is now uh, like sort of starting to chant and they keep on saying evil dies tonight, evil dies tonight to the point where they whip themselves up into a frenzy and then, uh, which leads to them pursuing the wrong person. Yeah. But that doesn't play out in any kind of interesting way. It just sort of ends before the climax of the movie. So that's
1: not actually a (laughs) a hugely important part of the film. It is, but it isn't. I feel Mm. like there's, there's two things going on here. Um... And this is, for me, the biggest problem with the movie is that it's Mm. lack of focus. Um, I, I actually mostly had a good time with this. I'll just say that right now. It's a mess pretty much every Halloween movie is a mess except for the first one I mean they've all got problems
0: generally speaking the Halloween movies are pretty terrible yeah Uh, Halloween is a classic Halloween 2 is fine Dean Cundy shot it I'm not Uh, a big fan it still looks okay it's functional Um, at best for me Halloween
1: 3 is weird as fuck Halloween
0: 3 has sort of been rescued from the ash heap just because it's so unbelievably strange yeah Uh, it's got a really like Michael Myers isn't in that one it's got a really weird premise about like robots and Stonehenge magic
1: yeah Blessed, uh, it, it's weird uh, halloween
0: Hel- 4 is actually pretty straightforward and effective it's it's halloween 4 is the best halloween 2 uh <laughs> yeah. ha- halloween 5 is the shitty sequel to halloween 2 and yeah because uh, Hall-
1: that because that, that's where we start hmm. getting into uh psychic powers in right. Halloween Five. <laughs> that's right they halloween to introduce some new stuff halloween 6 they introduce the cult of thorn which proves like- <laughs> that if michael myers doesn't kill every member of his family the apocalypse happens uh, and yeah, he's like
0: used as this uh, like an assassin by these two war ancient yeah. warring clans of some kind. And if there's you, magic stones. If you and absolutely shit.
1: must see Halloween Six, see the producer's cut. It at least makes more sense. It's yeah,
0: it's still bad, but it's still it, bad. You could, but
1: you, you can actually follow it. Now. And the ending there's there's two different endings. One to the, the character of Doctor Loomis, played by Donald Pleasance. Uh, the ending of the theatrical cut Is an insult to Donald Pleasant's character and memory. Which they
0: shot after he died They
1: didn't I mean, even shoot it They, they just, just cut to credits and cure him screaming As though something bad happened and, off camera and, and then it immediately fades up in memory of Donald Pleasance what? It's like
0: the saddest thing it's really
1: offensive. Um, it's, it, Whereas the producer's cut Leads to this big cliffhanger ending with him Which is very strange Would have sent the, the whole series off in a very different direction mm. And obviously they can never resolve it Because sadly Donald Pleasant's passed away But It's a better ending. (laughs) So you gotta give it that much. Um, Halloween H2O I think is mostly fine. I think that one's the other one that's pretty good. Halloween Mm. Resurrection is fucking stupid. You got Buster (laughs) Rhymes like roundhouse kicking Michael Myers in the face.
0: Uh, That movie's just abysmal. Uh, Rob
1: Zombie (laughs) has never been a subtle filmmaker. So whether you like him or not, those movies are fucking over the top and crazy.
0: The idea of... uh, it's an origin story. It's sort of, we follow around uh, in this one, you get to see him as a little kid. Uh, (laughs) You get to see Michael Myers as a child and sort of his horrible home environment and just the, his abusive parents and everybody's just sort of screaming at each other. And then the, I think that like the last third of the movie is the, Mm. all the events of the
1: 78 film just just crammed into the final act. Yeah. Yeah. One one final killing Mm. spree. And then I already said two is just a whole giant bundle of weirdness, but I think it's very earnest. Um, And then even David Gordon Green's 2018 film, which I mostly like, uh, is... On one hand, a pretty straightforward, respectable Halloween slasher, but there's also some weird shit in there. The whole, like, super rich podcasters who have carte blanche to just sort of taunt Michael Myers with his mask and a giant checkerboard. Uh, You've got the uh, uh, psychologist who has decided that he really just wants to see Michael Myers and Laurie Strode fight, so that's why he did all this. Like, there's a whole bunch of stuff in it that's just really kind of weird and is there for no reason, so... The fact that Halloween kills is disjointed doesn't really bug me too much because at least we, it's have, consistent. we have low standards. It's, they've lowered our standards pretty much <laughs> for this. So they have got two movies going on here. One is Michael Myers resuming his killing spree. The resume, the resuming of the killing spree waffles from actually some pretty cool sequences and kills to we introduce some somewhat annoying characters who then immediately killed, which is again, par for the course in a slasher. We can say it's not good, but I can't really get up in arms about it. It's kind of just what happens. Mm. Um, Meanwhile, there's a story of now that Michael Myers is on a spree again and the whole town knows about it, we see this entire town has been scarred by the traumatic events of the original Halloween, and now everyone is basically fighting to kill their boogeyman Hmm. and that ends up going wrong and there's a there's a mob that ends up attacking someone who doesn't deserve it and it's really sad actually um i really like there's a bit where laurie strode is talking about like i got him he hunted me and he came after me and then we finally had our great confrontation and someone said he didn't care about you he wasn't looking for you he was literally driven there in a car by a guy who just wanted to see that happen arbitrarily you know like a bad screenwriter and then so basically Michael (laughs) Myers is not just doing his own shit and everyone else is is making this big giant deal out of it and he's just a shark Yeah, all he is is a shark he's just swimming through town killing he enjoys his work but that's
0: about it yeah, Michael Myers, like, he doesn't have much character. That's sort of why makes him so scary. Is yeah. just, he is sort of like a shark. Uh, John Carpenter described him as being semi-supernatural. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like the David Gordon Green films at least understand that about mm-hmm. Michael Myers. A lot of those crappy sequels don't. Yeah. Like, he's he ha- like he has a motivation. Like, he has a, He to par- kill his own sister. Yeah, oh, my kill my his God. own God. sister oh, or family God. members don't or care. The Cult of Thorn. Like, all of that stuff is complete mm-hmm. nonsense. And there's at least a small mercy in that they didn't try to introduce that kind of stuff in this movie. No, although, but, I, but praising a movie, a movie for what's not in it. Isn't much of a way to well, criticize a film.
1: One can appreciate that when you're rebooting a franchise that you maybe you've learned some lessons from the past. I, I actually like there's a, without going into any detail here, there's some, in, there's some indication that Halloween kills is suggesting that Michael Myers might actually be supernatural after oh. all, like really leaning in. And I've heard some people say like, Hey, that's not fair. You know, the last Halloween movie said Michael Myers wasn't supernatural, and I'm like, okay, uh, I'm gonna throw that. I'm gonna turn that back around. We've removed everything except Halloween one. Mm. What happens at the end of Halloween one? Donald Pleasance shoots Michael Myers six times, and he falls off of a second story building. Mm. And then he walks he it walks off.
0: He, yeah, he gets up and walks away. There, he, he, he is really not was, normal. He, he really was. And the last line of dialogue, he really, he really was the boogeyman. R- as just a matter take, of fact, he was. They're just
1: taking that literally here. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually fine with all of that. The movie is a big sloppy kiss. It's just, I, I appreciate what you're going for. You've done it inexpertly. But I actually enjoy this as much as most of the other better halloween movies i would mm. say it, it's like i think halloween one is just the, the 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 king and then somewhere like two and three is like halloween h2o which i really do think is jamie lee Curtis's finest hour in this series The think mm. is really good in it <laughs> and um <clears throat> excuse me and uh rob zombie's halloween two, which is just so wild i have to appreciate it all right. I, I like it's it's terrible but it's really exciting to watch i, I, I don't even think it's terrible anymore mm. i just think it's i just think it's outlandish but i think it knows it's outlandish all right and then I think this one. I just had a good time watching. I was never um. bored. I was never bored here. There was always some shit happening. It was full of incident. There was some amusing writing. There's also some bad writing. The kills are pretty memorable. Yeah, it's, it's well shot. Like it's everywhere every, The acting is all good. It's like I, I dig this. It's a mess, but I dug it. I, mean, I, I suppose being
0: annoyed is different from being bored. So. Yeah.
1: Like it no, wasn't, I, I wasn't I mediocre. This, like At least it I, tried some
0: stuff. I, I, you know? I found this film to be very annoying. I felt, mm. think it was just sort of all over the place. All of the fan service stuff just I found it to be so obnoxious.
1: Mm-hmm. There's a,
0: a scene in the original uh, Halloween where uh, the main character, uh, Tommy, is, Tommy. The, is the, yeah. the boy's name, is being pushed around by some bullies. We get to see one of those bullies' backstory and how he has <laughs> in turn also been bullied. And they show flashbacks to 1978 and things that happened that night You know to sort of... Repurpose the original Halloween 2 Also you to re- also to connect
1: a few other characters directly yeah. to Michael Myers. Oh yeah, I saw Michael Myers too. Like I'm sure, but
0: did. but those things don't really enrich the story. They don't mm. enliven things. It's it's all like fan service stuff. There's we get like to see a CGI uh, Donald Pleasance in it. It's not CGI. Uh, it's
1: that's makeup apparently.
0: Oh, it's so somebody in makeup. It's somebody okay.
1: in makeup. It's good makeup. If it's it, makeup,
0: it looks a lot like. Uh, I thought it was like CGI. It is
1: not CGI apparently. So I'm told. Mm. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. But I was told it's makeup, and if so, it's impressive makeup. Mm. Um. Listen, fair enough. I think we're dealing with once again the. Uh, fr- There's this pattern I found with horror franchises, particularly slasher franchises, where um. A new movie comes out, hmm. and one of two things tends to happen: it's either lambasted for not doing anything new, or it's lambasted for doing something too new. And then a couple of years later, after we all get used to the fact that it exists, the defenders start coming out of the woodwork. And people start saying, like, you know, yeah, they tried something new and I kind of dug it and it was fun. Or, yeah, they just kind of went back to the formula, but they showed that the formula works and it was fun. So, now we have Defenders of pretty much every film on the Friday the 13th series. Pretty much, yeah. You know? And, honestly, they're all right. (laughs) There's every single, even the worst film of that series, I I get it. I get why someone would like it, you know? Those films are all bad, but, uh, you know, they're, they're entertaining. Exactly. So, if... A slasher movie, just because Halloween 1 is vaunted, the rest of the series is mostly junk. Yeah. Some of it is entertaining junk. Halloween Kills has this frustrating thing where I feel like David Gordon Green was making something that was mostly junk. Mm. He was making a junk slasher sequel with a few sort of hints at loftiness. Yeah. You know, a couple of scenes that make it seem like things are bigger than they are. But what he ultimately succeeded at was making pretty good junk. <laughs> and as a result, I'm not mad at it. I know some people are like, dude, the worst movie? Like, no, it's really far from the worst Halloween movie. Um, it's, it's, it's it's a sloppy mess of a, of a film, but I had a pretty good time watching it. Mm. Um, so that's where I'm at. The, the ambitions were a little lower. And as a result I'm not so mad That they They didn't like Mm. Knock it out of the park Um Let's move on And let's talk about Uh There's another film We both saw Going back to Timothy Chalamet Uh There's a new Wes Anderson movie Indeed there is In theaters It's called The French Dispatch Uh It is about A fictional magazine Called The French Mm. Dispatch Which is a American publication uh, Stationed in France
0: It's It's an anthology film Uh The French Dispatch Is an anthology film We get three stories Uh All All basically, these would be stories that
1: would be in this magazine in, like, the 1930s or 40s.
0: The the framing device is, it's, yeah, it's a magazine that was published in uh, Kansas Mm -hmm. and took all of its stories from the local politics of a little town in France known as Ennui, France. So we get three stories set in this fictional town of Ennui, France, as filtered through the eyes of the reporters that work through the the French dispatch. Yeah. And uh, the... the, uh, Booking material is the publisher of The French Dispatch, played by Bill Murray. Yeah. Uh, is Has passed away. Yeah. And they're going to, and uh, one of his, uh, the stip- one of the stipulations in his will is that The French Dispatch be shuttered upon, yeah. upon the event of his death. So when this I is died, essentially... Uh, this is
1: the last issue, basically.
0: The, so we're sort of looking back over the history of this fictional magazine as it reported all these really interesting stories from this fictional town in France.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, and yet, that
1: feels a lot more easy to follow when you're in the moment. Well, like, it's, all, all it's, of this again, it's, again, it's just a, it's an anthology film. It's just mm-hmm. a series of stories. The only real connection is we are taking a something of an outsider's look at a very unusual, very quirky small town in France. It was this. This is the good the 30s, 40s. What is this? Oh, uh, it's it's like the, it's the 60s. It's the 60s. Yeah. All right, so it's the 60s because it's it's like.
0: It deals with pop art, you know. Um, what You're right, it's 60s, youth, yeah. youth politics, yeah, and uh, and a kidnapping story. There's,
1: there's a story or two in here that could have taken place at any time, but yeah, once you start putting pieces together, you're right. Um, but uh, and that's kind of it. It's just a bunch of shorts from Wes Anderson. Um, Wes Anderson is a filmmaker who doesn't so much make films anymore as he makes moving dioramas. Mm. He likes to put in a lot of rye detail. He likes to really uh, uh, play with style in a way that is incredibly comforting. I love his style. His style is very much... uh, um, It feels like we're watching something that, like, whether or not it's what you're into, you know that the storyteller is just, like, endlessly bemused by every detail and everything. Every, Every piece of food on a plate, every hairstyle, every bit of framing, every tiny little choice... You just know that Wes Anderson chose that and went, (laughs) "Eh, that's cute. Like, and you can just sort of get swept up in this little world he's created that's clearly very comforting to him.
0: Well, well, what I love about uh, Wes Anderson movies, and I do like Wes Anderson movies, I feel like uh, it, it took him a few films to sort of hit his stride. I feel like Fantastic Mr. Fox was sort of like his first great film. Uh, I'm I'm fond of, I'm fond of films like Bottle Rocket and, and uh, Rushmore but I feel like those are a little shabby I feel
1: like the first and, uh, I, I like the shabbiness of them. Mm-hmm. I feel like he became Wes Anderson with the Royal Tenenbaums when he started with the here is a fictional classic book here is the heightened sense of production design that we're used to here is the increasingly large cast right. of distinct eccentric characters. Played by recognizable yeah. Hollywood actors. But what he's yeah. always had in all of his movies is he's his movies have all, even in Bottle Rocket, which is his most like grounded movie. Mm-hmm. Um, all of his movies have been about people who are trying to transform the world around them into the world they want. Yeah, and and these tend to be people with uh, odd dreams or odd fixations, uh, and uh, as a result, they make the world into an odder place. And I like that. And although. He's made a couple of stinkers. Uh, Darjeeling li- Limited isn't very good. Yeah,
0: Life Aquatic isn't that great either. Uh, I, there's stuff
1: I like in it, but I don't think it's wow. amazing. Isle of Dogs is an impressive visual achievement, but you know, the more you think about it, the more you realize yeah, just totally. how, how much the cultural appropriation of that movie is really misguided and wrong. Um, but but uh, mostly these uh, movies are really, really fun, and I like them a lot. Yeah, um... I greatly
0: admire what he does. You're talking about how he makes living dioramas. Yeah, fine. That's what a film is. I'm not complaining. Uh, you know, we I'm are, we are sort of we're looking through a proscenium, and what uh, Wes Anderson does is make that proscenium just all the more pronounced, and yeah. makes the artificiality of his stories greater. And here he is firing on all goddamn cylinders. Mm-hmm. Uh, within his dioramas, there are dioramas to the point where <laughs> ac- where action sequences are filmed as still shots, where the actors are just frozen in place. Oh, yeah, those And are he hands yeah. the camera on these impressive gliding shots where he goes from diorama to diorama, where he's, he's clearly had to have like hundreds of people on set in one uh-huh. day just so he could film these sing- single shots. It's really quite great. Really there's quite there's more people in this movie than Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> like just scene after scene after scene of these gigantic tableaus where he's just sort of set up these gigantic crowds of people and somehow makes it seem sort of twee and light. Mm. It's so crowded and yet it allows you, the viewer, to kind of wander in and enjoy the sorts of twee pseudo-college intellectual worlds that he's trying to create. There's the world of pop art, and in, in the first sequence we uh, are see the well, story well the first of, major
1: sequence there's a couple yeah. like little. Oh, there's like Owen Wilson's bicycling tour oh, there's the the, yeah, it's it's a bi- bicycling
0: tour which kind of introduces the town but yeah. the, the first story uh, is tells the story of an artist who's been incarcerated for inc- incredible like, acts of years. violence yeah
1: and he, yeah, he decapitated and, people and, and, but, but in a way that seems almost makes it seem cute like the you know, only like Wes Anderson could the, do that the, like, this
0: killer is played by Benicio Del Toro and is like why did you decapitate those people and he says in the most charming way possible they had it coming. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he, while incarcerated, has discovered that he has a, a deep passion for creating art, and one of the uh, prison guards, played by Leia Seydoux, has become his muse, and it's a big part, a uh, big relationship between the two of them. How he's in love with her, she's definitely not in love with her him, and says as much, but appreciates uh, being the facilitator of his art, and it's all about this mm-hmm. art. Uh, agent played by Adrian
1: Brody, yeah, who was like and in it's... jail for like tax evasion, mm. but like he happened to chance upon Benicio del Toro's painting in the prison, mm. realizes this guy has genuine talent, mm. and as soon as he gets out, turns him into the next big art sensation. But now but, the but pressure co- is on Benicio commercially,
0: t- so like, yeah, a, mm.
1: very much so, and like, and now the pressure is on Benicio del Toro to, to... produce more. Um... I will say this that that sequence it's a little hit or miss for me. The ending of the story is really quite clever. The actual, like, when you, like, find out like, exactly how it ends, you're like, oh, that's, you thought that out. That's fun. Mm. I like what you did there. Yeah. Um, the next sequence, uh, it, which one's the next sequence? Oh, so the next sequence is the one with Francis McDormand mm. as a writer who is covering a youth revolt. Led by Timothy Chalamet, and mm. she starts and having, a, and it's
0: all very French New Wave. Oh, very much
1: so, and uh, it's all about like the youths. They want to make sure that like you know they're they want to integrate the dorms at their school, and it all boils down to this quasi like Les Misérables thing where like they've created barricades in the town and they've created some sort of deal where they're playing chess with the mayor, and if they win, their demands will be met. Met, but if they don't, the tear gas will start coming in. <laughs> um, full of whimsy timothy chalamet like when you see like we did not really talk about his performance in dune because the movie kind of swallows him up whole yeah, but when yeah. you look at like what he's doing in dune and then you look at what he's doing in the french dispatch and then you look at what he's doing in a uh, beautiful boy or when you look at what he's doing in little women you realize that this is a very multi-talented multi-faceted young actor who's incredibly <laughs> captivating and, well, he's and he's great he, he's playing
0: uh, off sort of his his sort of matinee idol good looks you know yeah. he's sort of a lanky sharp jawed looking boy um, so and he sort of wields that like a, like Orpheus and Orpheus yeah. or or Jean-Paul Belmondo oh, he'd be a great but Orpheus he would be a good Orpheus that would be he? awesome yeah someone should yeah. remake Orpheus and, awesome. and, and who would be Eurydice in that one um I because, yes, they do. Why not? Um, uh, well, uh, yeah, you do. she's well, a
1: little older than him. Saoirse and Florence Pugh. I mean, like, be honest here like those, <laughs> they're the young, they're the young titans the, the, right now, and, and any
0: of those young, hot yeah. actresses right now. Um, but those
1: are t- supremely talented people. So.
0: No, absolutely. Yeah. Um But he, he also like manages to project this sort of like naive arrogance, like something that you know is very adolescent. That of course, the Frances McDormand character is very drawn to. Mm-hmm. Uh and the big twist is she's the one who ends up kind of writing their manifesto, but because they don't really have
1: Ideas. A, an idea
0: to put in it. It's all this like kind of highfalutin language is about being free without actual rules that they want to implement. Yeah. Uh, So that one's really amusing And the third sequence uh, And kind of the most interesting Is about a reporter uh, Played by Jeffrey Wright Who is being interviewed On a 70s TV show And how he recalled the
1: time He wrote the story For the French Dispatch So there's another layer Of reality there A a little more than we needed I think But uh, it's actually There's two fun premises In this final one Uh, Jeffrey Wright is a food writer And he has been invited To like the commissioner Of the police to have police food hmm. with his own private chef. And Jeffrey Wright talks about this, and it actually like makes a lot of sense when you hear it, that police cuisine is an odd and rarely discussed offshoot of cuisine because of the very specific needs of hmm. police. And it started off with, like this is the kind There's of a- food that you would have... On a stakeout, it has to be something you can eat with only one hand. It has to be warm and nourishing, but it can't actually stain your clothes. Like, there's actually, like, a lot of limitations for it. And within those limitations, here's one chef who's apparently the greatest in the world and lives in this town and then right when they're about to eat the commissioner's son is kidnapped <laughs> and it leads to this incredible elaborate sequence that gets so elaborate that when Wes Anderson eventually says fuck it and turns the entire thing into animation mm. the animation is great yeah it's a real highlight actually it's this is not stop motion animation with Wes Anderson usually does this is 2D animation it looks like a Tintin comic comes to life it's really gorgeous um and then it and then it just sort of ends basically mm. where you expected it to um, these are all fun stories. I enjoyed visiting the French yeah, Dispatch. Man. What I was a little frustrated with in the end that kept it from being, I think, you know, one of Wes Anderson's best, is I don't really feel like it comes together and has a larger point other than this was a cool magazine. Mm. That's enough. It's a fun movie. It's certainly worth watching, but I feel as though there's more to be said. Uh About this magazine and the community of writers that comes together in it and how here's like speaking now with like the written word collapsing as we speak at least as an industry Uh um, and making you can make less and less money doing it. There's all these sequences of like Bill Murray like trying to like justify all the expenses his writers are doing to write these amazing stories and we see the stories we know they're worth it but these are expenses no one would pay now which is why we don't get stories like this. Yeah. Um, that level of contrast, that level of wistfulness for a bygone era of print journalism, I feel like there's way more he could have done to actually like bring that out mm. rather than have it just be part of the backdrop. It just feels a little insubstantial to me, which is frustrating because mm. I did have a good time watching it.
0: I think it's it's a definitely a love poem to a certain kind of journalism. Yeah, uh, that uh, it, it's still active just in a much smaller way, and mm-hmm. um, I, I feel like that. Give gives a lot of this film its emotional heft. That it, we're not just sort of enjoying these amusing stories about you know certain details of bygone era. We are enjoying the way we talk about those things. And I think the way we talk about pop art in the 1960s, the way we talk about youth uprisings, the way we talk about crime has definitely altered. And we used to sort of approach it with a little bit more of... A bemused intellectualism, rather than blank reporting. We're talking about how Dune is just blank reporting. This is about how the the language we use and how we talk about these things can make the story more exciting. Mm. And you know, it's not just reportage that there is a, a, an artistry uh, that is being paid paid homage to. And I feel like uh, Wes Anderson actually wrote good journalism for fake journalism in this movie. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, these, have been,
1: I, I, these have been really great articles, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah,
0: like, this, this is something you might read in, say, The New Yorker, or, uh, you know, a New Yorker-like magazine, which The French Dispatch, I think, is paying closest homage to. Uh, and it's a, a film that celebrates journalists and journalism and editors and the kinds of hard work they do and the devotion they had to their craft. Uh, the Bill Murray character is a great character. Mm. He, you know, I wish
1: he was was in it more. Yeah. Like
0: this could have been a much longer film where he had his own film, you know, he had his own story as well. Uh, But at the same time, this is also a film that wants to very openly acknowledge and celebrate the, the exciting kinds of stories that were once being reported on back in the 1960s about how exciting the art world was and how excited people were to talk about it. This reminded me of, um, uh, th- there's a documentary film about uh, th- this era of television in America when, like people like William F. Buckley would go on and just be smart on air, <laughs> and that was their job. Like there, there, used to be this kind of you know point and counterpoint, this kind of intellectual uh, air. It wasn't necessarily you know grand art or anything, but there was an aspiration to sound intelligent. Which you look around at the news today and. That seems to be kind of gone, doesn't it? And I think Wes Anderson is reaching back to a time when it was exciting to be smart. And I'm really excited at, at the way he told these stories about mm-hmm. how he wanted to celebrate intelligent reporters reporting on f- interesting stuff in intelligent ways and still make it this whimsical little uh, conversation, yeah. this little coffee clutch that you could have with your with your friends, friends. Uh,
1: I think There's you liked a- it more than I did. I, I did. It's, it's, uh, I, I, I
0: really, really love this. I, this I, my you yeah. know, Wes Anderson is just con- like really on an upward swing in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um I really liked Moonrise Kingdom. Uh and that I, was a while ago, now. It was a little while ago. Had,
1: since then we've had uh the Grand Budapest Hotel, which is which, great. Which I also like the Grand Budapest yeah. Hotel. We had the Isle of Dogs, which is which you know, yeah, fair best. Um
0: I think think that was the most recent one he did, right? I I think Dogs was before, but let me look that up. Um, No, 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 that was the most recent one. But uh, yeah, Yeah. uh, this one, he's, like I said, he's firing on all cylinders on this one. I think he has complete mastery of what he wants to do here. There's not a hair out of place. Everything is really impeccable in his movies, and it has never been as impeccable as in this movie, and I think he is Hmm. talking about really uh, things that aren't just interesting to him, but things I think that are interesting in American journalism. So okay. I think there's a lot going on here I, that I really I, I think really you appreciate. got a lot more out
1: of this than I did, and I'm really, really glad you did, but I did enjoy it. Um, let's talk about a movie that you saw and I didn't. This is the biggest movie that you saw that I didn't. Uh, this is The Last Duel
0: mm-hmm.
1: from director Ridley Scott, whose career began with the film The Duelists. Oh, I see. So a- this is his last film,
0: except he already made House of Gucci. You already um, made another one, yeah. I would
1: <laughs> say, here's what you do Film The Last Duel save it. Just save it. Put it away. Put it on ice Uh, for a while. And then when you think you might be winding down, that's when you release it. Get a nice little button on your whole career.
0: You briefly compared Dennis Villeneuve to Ridley Scott. And I think that is an apt comparison in that they're only as good as the screenplays that are handed to them. Uh, Ridley Scott uh, is way more interested in visuals than he is in like character and storytelling for mm-hmm. the most part. I feel like something like the Martian has such a good, strong screenplay. And he, you know, was working with uh, Matt Damon, who was yeah. able to sort of lend a lot of like flip humor to that role that he made a really great film. Great. Um, uh, Something like American Gangster only lives and dies by the strength of its leads, and Denzel Washington and Russell Crowe are both really good in that movie, so that mm. one's actually a little stronger
1: just for its acting. Something like Legend you can get away with because although the writing itself isn't especially strong, mm. it is literally just his job was bring a fairy tale to life, and he did it so beautifully, yeah. especially in the Director's cut, which is really great, which you can say for a lot of Ridley Scott movies. Uh, that yeah doesn't matter script is not important what matters is that holy shit did you see Tim Curry <laughs> holy fuck what an incredible achievement that kind of thing
0: but then occasionally he'll completely shit the bed with something like The Counselor uh, which is again it, it- He's just shooting what's given him, and he's trying to come up with v- interesting visuals to throw into... I've heard uh, people
1: argue that The Counselor, which feels way more like a Tony Scott movie than a Ridley Scott movie, <laughs> was an attempt to sort of work through the grief of his brother's death. Okay. Uh, and I can see that, honestly. Mm-hmm. And I think it's there's something about that that feels... It feels really genuine to me, like an attempt, but it also feels really inexpert. Mm. Uh, so I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, but yeah, he's just he's just a really hit or miss filmmaker yeah, overall. Um, and his hits are really really great. His misses are not. And, and uh, yeah. And this. is Oh, uh, how is this one? Th- this one is quite good um,
0: okay. because this is actually like I said, he he uh, is as good as the screenplay handed to him, and this is a screenplay written by. Uh, Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and Nicole Uh,
1: And
0: they uh, each took a section of this movie and wrote it themselves. Oh, and it's like it, a Rashomon thing. It's a Rashomon oh, thing. That's it's where we, we idea. get okay. to see the same span of time uh, in, uh, in medieval France as seen from the perspective of the three main characters. There's, um, uh, the Matt Damon character who is a uh, Jean de Carouge who is uh, a, a hardworking knight and desert and, you know, wants to marry into money, feels like he deserves land. And he's just sort of like a, a very kind, kind hearted, hardworking, but not too bright, put upon kind of uh, nobleman. And uh, he is promised land uh, when he gets married, he marries Jodie Comer, a character named Marguerite played by Jodie Comer. And uh, she is generally pretty uh, supportive of what he's doing and, uh, when he comes home from getting, uh, getting his pay one day, he has to go on this long trip to get his actual pay, he comes back and his wife has said, this other nobleman uh, broke into the castle and sexually assaulted me. And Matt Damon has no recourse but to say, uh, what say you? you? You assaulted my wife. And He said, well, surely I didn't do that. And so he has to take this guy to court. And what it boils down to is he has to defeat this guy in a duel, uh to, in order to um we learn later in the movie not just uh get essentially uh, achieve justice, mm-hmm. but if he fails in that duel, not only will he be put to death but his wife will as well so because, yeah so because we 'll learn later on that this movie is actually very much about how women got the fucking shaft in the medieval times and how rules mm-hmm. were uh to- rules and laws were set up to protect the men from ac- uh, accusations of rape. Uh, the second section is told from the other nobleman's per, uh, perspective. That's Jacques Legris, played by Adam Driver. And in Adam Driver's version of things, he is a much more dandyish fellow. He's a lot more intellectual. He has it uh, well in with another uh, noble lord who's played by Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck is great in mm-hmm. this movie. Uh, he plays this sort of like he- hedonistic bad boy in a way that I haven't seen him play before. Uh, Ben Affleck actually has a great deal of range as an actor. I think he gets uh, he gets shit on a lot. Uh, and scenes play out a little bit differently. For one, the uh, Matt Damon character is now seen as sort of this, like, idiot brute who can't really string words together and actually has bad relationships with all these people around him. And when he complains, it seems completely unjustified. Uh, There's a scene in the Adam Driver section that isn't in the other two sections where he meets Marguerite for the first time, and they flirt, and they have this really interesting conversation about literature and how she's really well-read and how they actually kind of bond and have this romantic uh, attraction to one another, and when it comes time for the assault in question, it plays out a lot differently. The third section is from Marguerite's perspective and how Matt Damon is a brute, Adam Driver is a brute... And she's fucked. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And how her perspective shows how much she has been struggling just to live a decent life while uh, she is uh, essentially being uh, denied basic human amenities by the system in which she's being raised. Uh, It's a wonderful uh, modern allegory Mm -hmm. for the way of... Sexual assault is handled when privileged
1: men are involved does it feel mm. like that because that's a- that's a that's a very tricky subject matter to handle mm. effectively does it feel like that's handled from the perspective of again really this guy's a male filmmaker mm. does it feel like that's handled i mean granted you're 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 a guy so you know, right. take it with a grain of salt but does it feel like that's handled? tastefully or in a way it's, that won't be like horrific for people in the audience to no, watch it, and make them want to leave the theater and be like, "Ugh, this movie.
0: No, I, th- I think it is. It is handled pretty well. I think okay. it's, it's actually a, a pretty powerful allegory of uh, how uh, power as wielded by powerful men uh, sort of puts them in a position where they're allowed to get away with uh, mis- mistreating women and how the women have so little actual legal recourse uh, in in this world and in the modern world too yeah. uh, that uh, you just sort of understand like what the what the truth is at the end of the day and how the way men see themselves uh, is a just sort of a way to sort of bolster their own ego. The first two parts are very much about ego and about how these two men see themselves as being nobler than they are. When the woman is the one who only really sees the actual truth of this, this isn't like a Rashomon thing where the truth is really ambiguous. You know what the actual truth is at the end of this. And when there is that final last duel, uh, you get, you understand exactly what's at stake uh, because it's Ridley Scott, it's uh, like he films the hell out of this. It's super well photographed. It's almost mm. overproduced. Uh, this is actually such a, a, a powerful human drama that adding all of this sort of f- photographic flourish detracts from that a little bit. I think he added a little bit too much style. Ridley Scott wasn't ne- necessarily the best director for this. But Ridley Scott also knows how to get out of the way of the screenplay. And because the screenplay, I think, is strong enough... It still reads as a pretty darn good film. Um, I really liked it. I really liked it. I think it's really uh, up to date. I think it's really timely, Mm. uh, which, you know, I know that's a word critics like to throw around, but I think it actually is. And uh, and I really really kind of enjoyed what went into this. I really enjoyed sort of the conversation that it's trying to spark. It feels a little bit college level, but that's fine. Uh, And I'm
1: just glad it's being had. All right. Well. Mm. More of a rave review than I expected That's hmm. awesome I'll have to check that out um, Alright which brings us of course To the reason why you're all here Bergman Island right? Bergman Island Or
0: did you want to talk about the, No Bergman it, the, Island The Twelve Puppies Bergman Island Christmas Boyfriend Bergman
1: a... Island Which I assume is a dating show About people trying to date Ingmar Bergman <laughs>
0: Yes, uh, Ingmar Bergman, uh, a, lot, a lot of people know this, but he went on the dating show once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, did you ever,
1: uh, uh, earlier what, what, this what year... What do you like? Angst. <laughs> earlier this year, uh, we uh, reviewed a film called Annette, uh, which is a an opera from uh, um, Leos Carax and mm-hmm. a band called Sparks. And I don't remember if I talked about it enough, but I in, in the intervening uh, um, time... I got spectacularly into another opera that Sparks did. I believe it was called The Seduction of Ingmar Bergman. Okay. Yes, it's called The Seduction of Ingmar Bergman. You can listen to it as a whole album. And it is about how Bergman, after he won an award at Cannes for Smiles of the Summer Night, uh, which was a comedy, very unlike uh, his usual mm. stuff, was invited to Hollywood and wined and dined. And offered, like, ooh, we'll give you director's cut. Yeah, just come on in and bring mm. your style to our Hollywood product. <laughs> oh, and it's just Bergman going, well, I've never had a budget before. Oh, and it's no. just him be like, super tempted to completely mm. sell out. And it is great. Mm. Please listen to that. You can find it wherever. You can find stuff. Like, it's definitely a hoot. Mm. And I assume Bergman Island is also a hoot. Uh, sure. Uh, Yay! No, uh,
0: Bergman Island takes place on, well, Bergman Island. Um, there is an island in Sweden called, I, I'm going to mispronounce it, Furo. F- f- yeah, I, f- f- I, I guarantee it's, uh, you mispronounced f- that. Föro, it's, it's, that cl- it's be- right somewhere between Faro and Föro. And okay. um uh, it it's an island where, uh, Bergman lived for a lot of his life. He lived in a little house, and that was just sort of his getaway. It was a, a quiet very uh, un- unpopulated place where he got mm. to sort of wander around on beaches and he made movies there. And yeah. to this day, you can actually go on what they call Bergman safaris. And wa- <laughs> this is a real thing. And you, you you can go to this little island and you can wander around Bergman Island and see Bergman films in Bergman's personal theater. And you can rent rooms in a little Bergman house. Whitney, and, I uh, promise you,
1: I promise you this. Mm-hmm. If I ever make it big, I won't. If I ever make it big, I am buying you a vacation to Bergman Island. Oh, will you? Oh, thank you. I, I i want to take the bergman
0: safari so bad you have to do this Uh, you have
1: to like you have to write mm -hmm. about it i really really want this for you (laughs) this would be if there was like a john carpenter island for me (laughs) i would be like
0: welcome to they live land also (laughs) known as the real world
1: ouch (laughs) commentary (laughs) anyway
0: but uh Yeah, this is about, this uh, takes place on Bergman Island, and it's about a pair of filmmakers uh, played by Vicky Creeps and Tim Roth. Tim Roth is the more well-known filmmaker of the two of them. He has a lot more successes. She's uh, sort of still in the promising filmmaker stage. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, in order to be inspired and also because they're big fans of Ingmar Bergman, because I imagine any filmmaker is, because he's one of the great masters, uh, decide to go to Bergman Island on this little retreat, where he will uh, attend screenings and sign autographs and sort of rub elbows with fans, and she will essentially try to be inspired by Bergman's
1: presence. Are they in
0: a relationship? They're or they... they're a married. Couple.
1: Oh, okay, all right. Just checking. Okay. Yeah,
0: and uh, if if you know anything about, and you see the relationship right away, if you know anything about the director, the director is uh, named Mia hansen luva Oh, okay. And well, you, I'm familiar with her. She's done a few movies. Uh, really celebrated movies. And, uh, she also was, uh, I'm not sure if was married to, her, or at least was dating Olivier Assayas for a little while. Right. He was a, a little bit more celebrated than she is. So well, he, he kind was, of making movies,
1: making movies longer. Making movies longer yeah, so he's better known.
0: He you know, was going to screenings and stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, Mia hansen and Luva did, uh, things to come, which was really, uh, celebrated in like 2016 when it came
1: out. Mm. Um, yeah. And Olivier Assayas and, did stuff like, um, uh, what did he, he did that um personal, per- personal Shopper. personal shopper I think yeah. was i think
0: it might have been the last film of his I saw um yeah, but personal Shopper is really really good, yeah uh, yeah films like Demon lover and and irma vep, and he yeah. does yeah so some well known art house
1: films yeah, for like the last like thirty um, years he's been around yeah,
0: and uh we get to be, the masterful direction in this, we get to know everything about their relationship through little tiny moments and little conversations they have about her anxieties about trying to produce good work while sleeping in the bed that inspired scenes from a marriage uh, <laughs> with her husband. So she's a, like a little bit anxious uh. in that. And they're there to sort of, like, celebrate art and, you know, be really inspired. It's like, let's go and watch a Bergman film and be inspired. And the only print they have sitting around is Cries and Whispers, which oh, is, like, God. one of the most emotionally harrowing movies you can watch. It's like, yeah, let's just sit and watch this, like, lighthearted film and cuddle up. You don't cuddle up to Cries and Whispers. It's like, let's cuddle up in the up in front of the fire and watch Eraserhead. Ooh. It'll be romantic.
1: Okay, that actually would be romantic for you. For me, maybe. But uh... Yeah, I'm just saying. It takes all kinds, doesn't <laughs> yeah. it?
0: But uh, partway through the movie, uh, she is expressing all of this anxiety about how she's not uh, sort of feeling the inspiration just yet. She doesn't know how to end her story, and the screenplay that she's writing. So she starts to tell the story to the Tim Roth character. And in so doing, we begin seeing the film in her mind. And we actually get to see it play out. Uh, as a film starring uh, Mia Vashakovska. Hmm. And the story within the story is about uh, the Mia Vashakovska character. This fictional uh, woman mm-hmm. who is returning to a Bergman island-like place uh, and is to f- attend a friend's wedding, where she's actually going to reunite with uh, an old, uh, her teenage boyfriend, her first love. Mm-hmm. They're both seeing other people. They see each other, and there's magnetism right away. Are they going to continue to have an affair, or are, you know, what's what's going to go on with this relationship between the two of them? And we keep cutting back to Vicky Creeps as she's telling this story, and we kind of are sensing a lot of marital tension now yeah. between these two characters and this story she's telling about, you know, love and infidelity in, in Sweden. Yeah. And the film doesn't let us out easy. It doesn't come to any kind of definitive conclusion as to the nature of the relationship. There's not going to be a big catharsis. We do come to an end of the story within the story. right? But that also just sort of leads to... The Mar- the Vicky Creeps, Tim Roth couple just kind of continuing to live their lives well, with this knowledge of themselves. And yeah. there's a lot of complex storytelling going on. And the mastery of the direction is making it seem completely natural and easy to consume. You understand what's going on and ex- what's going on beat for beat emotionally with these characters yeah. through each little grand narrative double back and twist well that oh, sounds which, really good yeah it it is it's really quite good it's what's a little unusual is that this does not resemble a Bergman movie <laughs> I mean, Bergman did tell plenty of stories about marital strife scenes from a marriage, for mm-hmm. instance it, was um,
1: it shot on Bergman Island or was it just like a look was
0: no it was shot on it was okay, actually so, shot on
1: Bergman Island all right, so I, so is that, yeah.
0: I assumed that in fact that there was a lot of documentary footage because you can take these safaris and there's like tour guides and and Bergman was here when he shot this scene in persona yeah. and Uh, Yeah, they name-check Persona a lot. It's like, I came came to Bergman's house to write a screenplay. I'm never going to write Persona. Oh, nobody's expecting Persona from you. Because Persona is one of the best movies ever made, full stop. And uh, so, yeah, there's this sort of anxiety of comparing yourself to Bergman. But the sort of uh, intergenerational and religious angst that comes from a lot of Bergman's movies... Aren't present in this. They're not exploring a Bergman-like film. They're using Bergman as sort of a backdrop of cinephilia in order to explore one one's own art and one's own heart. And and I appreciate that about this movie. Um, there, are, if, if you make a movie like Bergman, all you're doing is imitating Bergman, uh, and yeah.
1: people will see that Bergman was so. Uh, well, that's that's a danger so, we talk about this a lot. That's the danger of if you only mm. study good movies. You could only it, remake those movies. Well, that's, yeah. that's an exaggeration. But like, if you study all the Bergman movies, what you're going to learn is how does Bergman tell stories? Mm. You're not necessarily going to learn how you tell stories and that's the that's the potential trap. Yeah. So the fact that they went to Bergman Island and didn't tell a Bergman story actually speaks really highly of them because they still mm. get their voice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they didn't just fall under the spell of Bergman, mm. you know. Uh,
0: Vicky Creeps is a wonderful actress. Yeah. She's incredibly subtle. She's able to convey a lot of emotion without a lot of gesticulation as it were. Uh and and Tim Roth is playing just sort of uh, he, you can see that he's like a, a little bit too high on his own celebrity, mm-hmm. but it's his character. Isn't all about that. It's only in a few subtle ways that we're yeah. getting told like that element of him. Uh, I, I really liked this. I really thought that they're, I really expected sort of an homage to Bergman or a lot of shout outs to Bergman. And indeed there are a lot, mm-hmm. uh, they get to go to the Bergman screening room, this couple at one point, the one where they watch cries and whispers and they're trying to figure out which Bergman film they want to watch. And the projectionist is there waiting for them to make a goddamn decision.
1: And he's just sort of <laughs> leaning
0: against his fist. just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they finally say, we'd like to see Sarah Band, his last movie, the sequel to Scenes from a Marriage. And he says, I don't have that. That was shot digitally. This is a film projector. Just look, I have cries and whispers. You want it? <laughs> like, he, he ends up making the decision for them. <laughs>
1: It does suck that they don't have that they don't have a Bergman film.
0: Yeah, you think they do it? It's like oh, let's watch let's watch Fanny and Alexander. No, that's too long. You know, they're they're that's
1: too long like, is perfectly reasonable. Can we watch the complete Fanny Alexander? Like the five
0: hour version of Fanny look, and Alexander? Look,
1: I have to get home to my wife. <laughs> look, I have other I have another job. There are other yeah, things this, in my life going on. Right.
0: This is two stories that are interestingly yeah. told and both emotionally compelling and both informing one another in, mm. in a really professional mature sort of way and i yeah i really really liked it that's
1: great okay well uh which you know reminds me in certain respects of uh boyfriends of christmas past
0: are they dead please tell me they're
1: dead oh my god so here's here's the thing
0: with okay that that is that is the 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 boyfriends yeah yeah no
1: no no no. like yeah here's the thing with this movie um i there's there's certain i'm trying to figure out how the best way to frame this um Mm -hmm. Whoever is listening right now, uh-huh. I don't know how young you are, old you are, where you live, what your experiences are. Mm. What I can tell you, without speaking out of turn, is that the world does have magic in it. Uh-huh. You're not going to know about that magic until it hits you. We, 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 when we experience the magic, already there snipers aiming at me right now. You're not supposed to tell people Or get people ready for these moments mm. um, I've often uh, uh, Toyed with the idea of Like a, a screenplay about someone Who gets like turned into a Turned into an animal Like turned into the family dog Because they weren't spending enough time with the family mm. And then their next door neighbor says Phil is that you? Oh you're a dog Okay this happens to everyone when they turn 40 <laughs> uh, Just spend more time with your family It'll all get resolved in time For I assume you have a big meeting on Thursday Ruff. Mm. <laughs> Okay Sunday Fine You have a big meeting on Sunday It'll all be wrapped up by then If you just spend more time With your family Just focus on that And everything will be fine Happens to everybody Don't stress Magic is everywhere What Boyfriends of Christmas Past Reveals that it Is a power that I didn't know I had Ex-boyfriends mm-hmm. Have magic powers When you break up with them They get magic powers Yeah I didn't know this Okay. I should have listened to Scott Pilgrim They clarified this pretty clearly When you become an ex, become an ex Or really anything really it's a, That's just exes mm. but When you become an ex you have a power It's not the power of like baggage Although that can happen mm. You get magic Now in the case of Boyfriends of Christmas Past uh, We meet a woman named Lauren She's played by Catherine Haina Kim She has quite a few ex-boyfriends She also has a best friend Named Nate, played by Raymond a black. Uh, and they have been best friends since college. They are adorable together. They are both incredibly attractive. Mm. Everyone around them is just basically looking at their watches waiting for them to hook up because it's been a while now. Mm. They're the Ross and Rachel of their group. and uh, but they don't see it. And it looks like maybe Nate is like they're finally single at the same time is gonna say something, but she's completely oblivious because. She works at an advertising agency and she has a pitch due on Christmas Eve. You know, because everyone at various companies likes working at Christmas Eve. They should establish that uh it
0: no, no, no no business, no business do that. I was just gonna no say one we does should this. establish there's that like this is like par for the course for this kind of business no. and it's really unusual. No 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 it, no
1: one does this. Yeah. No one needs that pitch verified on the, the 24th day before of Christmas. December, yeah. You know why? Because <laughs> no one's working on Christmas. They're not gonna get started.
0: It's stupid. Most businesses, like business businesses, are yeah. cl- are open when the stock market is open. Yeah, the stock market isn't open on Christmas Eve.
1: No, like seriously, most business. I mean, some places have to keep the lights on. Some mm. businesses always there'll always be a locksmith open on Christmas because someone's going to do that. Yeah, but for the most part, most major businesses that can afford to shut down and give people a few days off do. You know why? People don't like working at Christmas. Your boss doesn't. You don't. They don't do that. Again, there's always someone who has to work on the holidays. It always sucks. But if you can avoid it, like, say, at a big advertising agency, you're gonna. Hmm. So this plot point is always bullshit. And you know that it would have been so easy to find a way to do some other plot point. But in any case, you distracted by work. So while her best friend is trying to tell her that he loves her, Mm. much like Finn was trying to tell Ray that he was force sensitive. (laughs) Just like that. You know, uh, she's visited in the middle of the night by the ghost of her high school boyfriend. And he says, oh, hey, how you doing? Yeah, it's me. I still got this skateboard. Just so you know, I'm in high school. How, How do you do, fellow kids? Yes. Uh I, I have come to tell you. Oh hang on. I texted this to myself so I wouldn't forget. You will be visited by three ex-boyfriends, and they will try to teach you a valuable lesson before it's too late. Okay, oh, bye. Skate skateboard by boy is Marley. Yeah. Okay. He's Marley. And she's like, wait, too late for what? What? Ah. She is greeted every successive night by one of her ex-boyfriends. They clearly establish That these ex boyfriends are not dead. She doesn't have a suspiciously high number of ex boyfriends who are dead. That would raise a lot of questions. (laughs) If you had, like, if you're in your late 20s and four of your exes are dead. That's, that's an unusually high number. That's <laughs> to, a number
0: that raises questions. To, to lose one parent is unfortunate. To lose them both seems like carelessness. Plus,
1: I'm not making light of anyone who's ever lost someone because obviously that's sad. Mm. But if everyone you've ever dated died mysteriously, people would look askance and go, well, let's not date them. Every single time she goes to one of these ex-boyfriends, they take her on like a trip into the past mm. where it's like, yeah, we dated for a month, several months, three years in one case. And then we tried to take it, like, take it to the next level, like, ask it to meet my family, ask you to move in, ask you to marry me, and then you immediately panicked and ran away. Mm. And it turns out that this is actually, uh, 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 they, they try to explain it as, like, her mother left them when they were, when she was a child, just before Christmas. Okay. And as a result, she's always afraid she's going to hurt people like her mother did, completely oblivious to the fact that she is hurting people like her mother did by jumping out on them when they, were, when they needed them. And there's almost a level of poignancy to that. The problem is, uh, even without that ex- explanation, it's pretty reasonable. We were dating for a month in college and you started talking about me as if I was part of the family and wanting to spend Christmas with you. You moved too fast so I broke up with you, is not unreasonable. Mm. You know, maybe it's maybe it's more than you needed to do. Maybe you could have said, I'm not going to spend Christmas with you. We'll talk about it again next year if we're still together, but not unreasonable. The guy who says, oh, would you like to move in with me? And she's still in like her mid-20s and isn't ready for that. And she says, no, she's not being unreasonable. The only one who has an argument is the guy who dated her for three years and asked him to marry her, and she said, no, I don't, no, I don't do that. And I'm like, you did it him for three years, and you never had the conversation about whether or not you were interested in marriage? <laughs> that one is on you. Yeah. That one is on you. He has every right to be mad about that. The other guy is just, you were young and didn't know what you wanted. Yeah. So, that's a whole bit of weirdness. But yeah, they never go anywhere, they don't actually explain it beyond that. It's just, turns out, ex-boyfriends can do that. So every ex boyfriend you've ever had you know, I've has been, the power to visit you on Christmas Eve I, and rub uh, your and rub your breakup in your face uh, and try to get you back on the back so you can so you can fuck the best friend you've had your whole life. You know, I've
0: I, I have exes. Yes you do. I've I haven't been called into service yet.
1: Well with, you have with my you have magic not, powers. You have not been neglecting your your responsibility to fuck your best friend. I, I, you haven't been neglecting that at all.
0: Well, I, I, I haven't been doing that, so I guess I have been neglecting my responsibility. Okay. To do that, or does my ex need to be re- re- neglecting their
1: responsibility?
0: No, 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 your ex is fine. Their, okay. Your ex, your
1: ex is your ex is completely blameless here. Your ex uh, needs to. Your ex, okay, well, listen. At some point, your ex is going to come in and say, "Hey, I need to fuck your best friend before it's too late." Okay. Uh, it's not too late because, but, like, the best friend's well, gonna die or they're, anything.
0: They're my ex. Have at it. You know, they, no, 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 you know it's the their ex,
1: business. The, the ex isn't gonna do that. They need you to do that so you can maximize your potential. They need me to, to fuck my best friend. Yeah. Otherwise, so, what are you doing with your well, life?
0: Well, I'm, I'm putting myself in the position of the ex with the magical powers here. Yeah. And I, I'm facilitating my. And I appear to them on Christmas Eve. It's a couple to of days before Christmas, but yeah, a couple of days to before, like I'm, like one one per night, one right.
1: per night. supposed to all in it, one night.
0: And this is ghosts of boyfriends past. There's no ghost of boyfriends present. No, it's boyfriends, boyfriends
1: of Christmas past, and they're all they oh. these are all boyfriends of Christmas past. All right. There is a point where they do show you Christmas future, hmm. where it turns out uh, that Lauren's uh, friend, because she was so distracted by work and kind of neglected him at Christmas time, she ended up pushing him to date someone else. And then like a year later They get engaged Okay, So that's why it would be too late Um, Here's the other problem with that You would imagine That to see him Get engaged to this other person Would make everyone go Oh no Mm. Oh that's too bad Oh that's a shame He won't be as happy Uh, He'll be much happier with this other person This guy is a fucking saint He's trying to like run like a youth center and like get the whole town engaged in like community activism and everything. And this other woman that he meets is just trying to make the world a better place and has similar interests and cares about the things that he cares about and isn't distracted by your day job and actually wants to spend time with him and they get along really, really well and everything about them is great. As opposed to the person he's in love with his best friend who has been emotionally ignoring him and completely oblivious to the depth of their relationship and kind of using him their mm. entire life. And so when you see in the future that he's going to marry this other person, you're like, good. <laughs> that's great. Do that. My God, she's not ready for this. Um, so that's weird. The shining light of this movie. This is not the worst movie I've ever seen from Hallmark. It's not even that bad, really. It's just kind of a stupid premise. Like, the premise doesn't really track. The more you think uh-huh. about it, the less it makes sense. And just, as an allegory, just kind of falls apart. Uh, because they just... Because A, her best friend would clearly be better off with someone else. And B, the issue clearly didn't have anything to do with her mother or Christmas time. It mostly had to do with the fact that she was young and not ready to settle down yet. But... Bless them they got to play her mother, uh, Paul Sun-Hyung Lee from Kim's Convenience, the dad from Kim's Convenience.
0: Uh, I, I don't know Have you ever Kim seen see that it, show? It's no, a Canadian
1: sitcom. Hmm. Um, th- there's been some controversy over, like, how it ended, uh, because okay. the people behind the scenes apparently, apparently there's some shittiness, but the first couple of seasons are really, really great. It's just a really funny store about a Korean family that runs a, like, a bodega okay. in Canada. Um, He's really funny on that show. And he is a fucking ray of sunshine. It's like that scene in the blues brothers where beam of sunlight just hits John Belushi. And he's like, I I, Jesus tap dancing. Christ. I have seen the light. That's every time Paul Sung Young Lee like steps (laughs) into this movie as her dad. He is funny. He is sweet. His whole subplot, by the way, we've got a. This is a rom com from Hallmark. They never used to do this, uh, where the two leads are both not white people. Okay, oh and, nice. And okay. that's that's is, that is something that okay. they're they're to their credit. Too late, but they're doing it. They're they're making a lot of effort to diversify their broad swath of Christmas movies, and this isn't even one where they both seem like they're clearly white characters who were just cast by whomever. Mm-hmm. They actually mm-hmm. do make an effort. Oh. To show like her family is like a Korean family having a Korean Christmas traditions and that's oh, kind of that, nice. That's that's really revolutionary for it's, Hallmark. It's yeah. actually kind of refreshing. It's not amazing, but it's kind of refreshing. Um, and but there's a scene at the end where she's talking about how, to just to her dad about how, yeah, when mom left us, uh, it really kind of fucked me up, mm. and it left me like reticent to make like deep emotional connections, and it turned me into my mom in a way, mm. and he talks about like how much it hurt him when their mom left as well and how he's so much happier that he remarried. This is another thing Hallmark never used to do show divorce in a positive light. Oh wow. Like it's sad that mom left and that, that hurt the family, but he's remarried and they've got a great relationship and it's really healthy Mm. and that's really sweet. So when you're, talking about a Hallmark movie and when you're reviewing a, when you're review, and this is actually you can see that in this whole episode by the way of, of Critically Acclaimed when you're reviewing a movie you're not reviewing every movie compared to every other movie you know, we're not saying is Halloween there, Kills there is good a, compared to Dune. We're there, not. There's saying definitely
0: a curve. How successful yeah. was it in what it tried to do? Exactly. How successful is it unto itself? Yeah. Not so
1: compared to other movies. So how good is Dune as a movie of Dune? Mm. How good is Halloween Kills as a Halloween sequel? Mm. You know. Uh, how good is this Hallmark movie as a Hallmark movie? And a Hallmark movie, much like a slasher sequel or a big-budget blockbuster, comes with certain expectations. Mm. We expect a certain amount of vapidity. Yes. We want vapidness. We don't want to have like a lot of thinking to do. We're, sort of, we're all just sort of snuggling under an afghan, mm. on the couch, eating cookies, drinking tea, and just not thinking for the rest of the night. That's mm. what we want from these movies. And on that level... This is reasonably charming. The cast is kind of funny. Uh, They're doing their job as to the best of their ability. Uh, It's a reasonably okay watch. Mm. The premise... Flawed and really confusing and doesn't... Again, I don't know when I'm gonna get to use these ex boyfriend powers I apparently have, <laughs> but I can't wait. Yeah,
0: that's what I was grilling you about. Like, when am yeah. I gonna be called to? Uh, I don't to, to to serve in. I'm that not capacity in custody as a magical ex boyfriend. I assume
1: in Boyfriends of Christmas Past 2 we're gonna meet like like Julie Andrews or someone is in charge of the ex boyfriends. Like Magic Brigade or something well, No, Julie Andrews I'm not going to get Julie Andrews Vivica Fox <laughs> Is the, is the, is the made for TV movie version of Julie wow, Andrews That, that was which, a long way down, wasn't it? <laughs> I like Vivica Fox She's like got, she got a whole actually, giant franchise to herself right now Good for her but, She's actually quite a wonderful that, yeah. that was not a dig in Vivica Fox My hmm. point is that She does a lot of made for TV right now That's her realm That's what she's the queen of Good for her Let's not take her. Let's not take her throne away and give it to mm. Julie Andrews of all fucking people. It's a, of a Fox. Uh, I assume she's in charge and she's mm. assigning ex boyfriend magic as needed. Yeah. Like, oh, she should be fucking her best friend. Uh, how many ex boyfriends does she have? Five. Well,
0: this is gonna take a while, but all
1: right. Yeah. <sighs> all right. Two of you were Marlies at the same time. Did she date two of you at the same time? <laughs> got two Marlies. We're good. Um, it's a stupid movie. Um but it is it is it is reasonably cute. I had an okay time watching it. uh I wasn't able to see they debuted three new Christmas movies this week. I was just starting the film You, Me, and the Christmas Trees starring the great Danica Mckellar as a woman who is described in the trailer as the Christmas tree whisperer yeah. Then there was another one, and I'm going can, to watch can, this one for next week either can we, way. Can
0: we go back to talking about Ingmar Bergman Hang on. for a second?
1: There's another one next week uh, starring, I forget who the, the mm. two leads are, but there's like two detectives who are investigating mm. a Santa who may be a criminal, and the Santa is played by Joe Pantoliano. <laughs> oh, I'm reviewing that. Mm. So we'll be talking about that another time. Uh, I was in the middle of watching one of those, and Whitney's like, Hey, I'm free early. You want to record? And I'm like, "Fuck." Do I want to see this movie or do I want to get to bed at a semi-reasonable hour for a change? Mm. And I'm 39, so the second option won out. So that's why there's only one this week, but I will be reviewing more throughout the Christmas season. You're welcome. Mm. Uh, But let's review some movies on the critically acclaimed scale. Now, Mm. once again, if you're new or if you're uh, just joining us, um, at the end of every episode, we review new movies on the critically acclaimed scale uh, some people have a star rating. Some people have uh, grades like A through F. We people have a 1 through 10. We review movies on a scale of C- to C+. C is average. Some good, some bad. Some people like it more than others. Maybe it's made for just one audience. C is average. Hmm. Anything below C is below average. So a C- that's below average. We don't recommend those movies. They may even be terrible. C-plus is above average. We do recommend these movies. They're above wow. average. They may even be brilliant. Hmm. But that's the highest you can get as a C-plus and the lowest you can get is a C-minus. On that scale, and on the adjusted Hallmark scale, <laughs> which is, again, low, low, low hmm. standards compared to maybe some other movies hmm. that are out there, uh, Boyfriends of Christmas Pass is a very high B.
0: Okay. <laughs> it's a
1: very watchable, not great movie. Even by Hallmark standards, it's not great, but it's cute. It's got a little weirdness. It's, you can have a few fun conversations about the things that don't make any sense. I had a decent time. Uh, Bergman Island. Where does it land? Oh, uh, that's a C plus for sure. Okay. I, I,
0: I really enjoyed the kind of s- subtle mastery of a movie like
1: this. Yeah. I wonder what. I wonder if uh, Ingmar Bergman had any ex boyfriends who wanted to teach mm. him something about Christmas. Moving no, but uh,
0: he, he did have nine children from six different women, so he had plenty of ex-girlfriends and ex-wives to choose okay, from. Okay, you
1: know what? I'm sure every ex has the power, so I'm sure all of yeah, Ingmar dude. Bergman's exes visited him at Christmas. and that's uh...
0: there, There's a stage play for you. Ingmar Bergman <laughs> being visited by all of his ex-wives.
1: Yeah, probably like literally because he's, he's got the kids at yeah. Christmas, so they're just <laughs> all showing up. I would actually love to see that. Uh, moving on, uh, The Last Duel, the new Ridley Scott movie. Uh, also a uh. um, I I...
0: Uh, as you said, Ing- Ingmar, Bergman, or Ingmar Bergman, Ridley Scott is a very uh, hit and miss director. He can do some really, really great work if he's got a good screenplay. I'm, I actually don't like a lot of his movies because his style seems really sort of empty and in some cases not even good looking to me. Uh, but when he hits it, he hits it. And I feel like he had a good enough screenplay here that he can actually make a pretty powerful, pretty topical movie uh, about sort of sexual assault and feminism and a lot of um things in the modern discourse
1: awesome uh the french dispatch the latest film from wes Mm -hmm. anderson uh is it's very wes anderson and if you're if you like wes anderson uh it's certainly not going to disappoint you on that level he has a particular aesthetic he is delivering he's telling some fun stories for me it felt a little insubstantial so i'm giving it a high b but i did have a good time
0: I, I got a lot out of this movie. I really enjoyed it. I felt it. It, it felt like being hugged. I just really, really liked sort of the, the warmth and affection and intellectualism that was just sort of being bandied about in this movie. So I give it a C plus.
1: Okay. Uh, Halloween Kills. Where do you ultimately land on Halloween Kills?
0: Halloween Kills kind of sucks. I'm going to give it a C uh, okay. It's it's just so. Uh, so unfocused, such a shambles, uh, and all of the the pathetic fan service stuff was really, really annoying. Uh, there are some interesting ideas that aren't followed through on. Mm-hmm. It's just an, another crappy sequel, and I'm not going to uh, f- forgive it that because I don't I don't want another crappy sequel. I want them to yeah. do something kind of interesting with a crappy sequel, and. They didn't do it here, so C-minus. I think they
1: did kind of. I think hmm. they did something interesting with the crappy sequel here. I, I'm not going to to this isn't a crappy sequel. This is a mess. Yeah, this is at least two different movies fighting each other for dominance here, and I don't think either of them wins that tug of war. But um, when it works, it works. I think the actual slasher elements are really, really fun. Uh, I appreciate that David Gordon Green is attempting to tell a story about. Generational trauma and how it self-perpetuates And becomes larger than itself mm. um, I don't think he does that very expertly But at the very least It's a Halloween sequel with something on its mind Which I yeah. think only like maybe two of the other sequels Can even claim mm. um, So I appreciate that they at least put some thought Into this Yeah. Um, And it, it it's actually Paced like a monster Like I wasn't bored with this I actually think it's eventful and energetic And ultimately I dug it. I'm digging it on a slasher movie scale, mm. specifically a slasher movie sequel scale, which is a bit on a curve. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to yeah. so give so, this. A, I'm going to give this a very low C plus for uh, it's one of my favorite Halloween sequels, which right. is a pretty pretty low bar, but for me it worked. Uh, and then lastly, Dune. Dune. Do- <sighs>
0: I, I there there's something to admire in Dune. Uh, I what? think the, the craft in Dune is okay, actually yeah. to be admired. Uh but that's not enough to make it an interesting film. So uh I'm I'm teetering between a C and a C minus. Okay. I'll I'll give it a a, a really high C minus. Okay. It, there's there's uh, like I said there there's something good fun to look at here. Uh trying to wrangle such an enormous story is an impressive feat and I feel mm-hmm. like uh even though it's uh, confusing, it's not jumbled up so much. Maybe yeah. maybe I, because I kind of know the story going in, it helped me, but... Uh...
1: Well, again, the funny thing for me is, hmm. um, you know, again, I didn't read the book. Hmm. And the David Lynch film left me somewhat confused about the story. Uh, the Denis Villeneuve film makes the story abundantly clear. And what he makes abundantly clear is that I don't think it's a very good story. At least not this first half on its own. Uh, it's actually frustratingly straightforward and simplistic and doesn't really engage with its themes very well. So what we have is a great sense of Epic visual scale, mm. but no sense of Epic drama Yeah. except for some generic world building and chosen one crap. <laughs> uh, the cast is very good, but mostly not given the space and material needed to show how good they are. Mm. Uh, and uh, although, yeah, there's some exciting visual bits there's mm. also some really boring visual bits and a lot of missed yeah. opportunities to make those visuals really say something other than it's big, isn't it? And I'm like, mm. yeah, What to what end, Dune? So I think initially I was kind of waffling and thinking maybe i give it like a C mm. for just general baseline competence. But honestly, the mediocrity of this movie and the clear sense of wonder and grandeur that they think they're accomplishing here clash completely. I think the mediocrity is worse than a crash and burn failure (laughs) Okay. because at least a crash and burn failure would have been an attempt to do something great. And I feel like what we're doing here is just trying to get out of the story's way Mm. and the story desperately needed someone to get in the way and guide it somewhere. Mm. And I'm giving this a C minus because I don't think it's a good film. Mm. I think it is an impressively, I think it's an impressively big production, but I don't think it's in service of anything that actually warrants all that effort, which is a fucking tragedy and pisses me off. So that is it for critically acclaimed. Thank you everybody for listening. We think you're wonderful. Please subscribe. If you haven't already, uh, we have recently moved to a new, uh, podcast server. Um, and, uh, that shouldn't affect you really, If you're already subscribed, unless you were uh, subscribing directly through Libsyn, which is our old podcast server, we're now at Omni. Mm. Uh, If you have any interruption in the delivery of your podcasts, uh, well, the only way you'd be listening to this is if you found it through the website, because then you wouldn't have got it. But uh, you can just change the RSS feed to Omni, and that should fix all your problems. But everyone else, it should have been really, really seamless. Uh, We've also joined the Fan Sighted Podcast Network. That's right. Big thank you to them. Uh as this you've probably heard uh, an adver- an advertisement at the beginning of this podcast, uh we're going to make it our mission not to make the any ads be obtrusive hmm. and get in the way of the flow of the podcast. Uh so there may be one or two, hmm. but we're really trying to minimize it and not have it be an issue. So, uh please let us know if you have any issues with the advertising. If anything hmm. comes up that is uh, ruining your enjoyment of the podcast or is in any way problematic about what is being advertised, we mm-hmm. would definitely want to hear about yeah, it. Please sure. let us know. Um, well, we
0: we do have... We can put the kibosh on that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, if we yeah, miss we, we something, actually, they're, yeah. They're, they're, they're open and communicative, so... Yeah. yeah. But we're not necessarily getting the ads uh, beforehand. Not always, So, no, yeah, so. If, if you hear something that like feels like a tonal clash or something we definitely don't agree with, please let us know. Please
1: let us know. But I don't yeah. think that's likely, so... In any case, we're open and we want to hear your feedback, so mm-hmm. thank you for that. Uh, if you want more Critically Acclaimed, mm-hmm. uh, first off, oh, one more thing before we move on. Uh, we are now officially on Spotify. We didn't used to be, and that's our entire back catalog going back to episode one to cancel too soon uh-huh. is on Spotify now, so you can listen to us on Spotify now. Yeah, uh, But uh, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, and on our Patreon, you have a lot of exclusive shows Uh, exclusively for Patreon members. We just dropped a new commentary track for It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Uh, That's Uh, our special Halloween special. We also do podcasts dedicated to Star Trek, Batman, uh, and tons of other stuff as well. You can Mm. vote for future episodes of our various shows. Um, All of that is available on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Thank you to all of our patrons without whom we would not be here. We Mm. could not be here. Uh... I don't know what I'd be doing with my life, but I'd probably be very unhappy. So thank you so much to everybody for your support for the show. If you cannot afford to support the show financially, we totally get it. But if you could please subscribe, leave us a review wherever you find us, uh, tell a friend that it exists, that would no. help out the show too. Um, and uh, we also have an email address. Our email address is letters at critically We might read your email on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail, which took a week off while Whitney was out of town, but we'll be back mm-hmm. this week. Whitney uh, what is our P.O. Box
0: You can mail us a thing if you like Uh, Send it to P.O. Box uh, Critically Acclaimed Network P.O. Box 641-565 Los Angeles, California
1: 90064 We would love to hear from you Thank you very very much to everybody Who's already reached out that way We're also on Twitter At Critic Acclaim I am at William Bibiani I am at Whitney Seibel And um Yeah I think I I think I think that's it That's it I'll never forget everybody everyone's a critic. I want to go to the
0: midnight show. I'm sorry, what? If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause, and Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91%